Hello, and welcome to Looking for the Ocean, the Pixar podcast where we talk about everything that Pixar has ever made and what it means to us. I'm Mark Young. As always, I'm joined by Danny Vincent. And Danny, today I understand that we have a very special recording to share with our audience. Yes, we have a really great guest I told you guys about last week, which is my parents. The way it worked out with our schedules and also just with technical things to try and figure out, you know, if I want to record with Mark with my parents. To be very real, like, here's what happened is yesterday I drove home to my parents. I put in my copy of our topic today, which is Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. We watched the movie. We got pizza because it was six o'clock and we're like, well, we could record now or we could eat first. And then we got pizza and then we came back and then we talked. We talked about it. And, you know, this was all convenient because, you know, if we... If we had somehow negotiated a thing where it's like, Mark, this is exactly when you need to be online to talk to my parents. We wouldn't be able to just improv and get pizza. So it all turned out okay. And Mark and I will still talk about the movie. So if you guys want your Mark and Danny discussion about the movie, you're going to get it too. But we still have an awesome guest, which are my parents. Yeah. And I've heard this file too, by the way. Danny's parents had some really good insights, and they're also just naturally good on radio. My dad, I believe, I don't know if he did radio in high school or stuff, but he has judged in speech and debate, so I don't know. I don't want to brag. You, you guys will all hear for yourself. Hi, guys. How you doing? Glad to be here today. Should, should I refer to you guys by your full name or just mom and dad? I think it's more cordial and natural for you to call us mom and dad. I meant more like, should the episode title be with Danny's parents or with Jim and Lori Vincent? Danny's parents are fine. Okay. Yes, I, I think so too. So I just have two questions, which is, um, well, this one's interesting because uh, you guys are definitely our oldest guests. How did you first... Well, no, the way, no. We are older guests. No, you are by old. far. I think our oldest guest up to this point is 35, maybe. Okay, I can, um, I can so double that. How did you uh, How did you first encounter Pixar? I mean, obviously it had to be Toy Story, but what did you guys think when you first saw Toy Story back in 1995? I assume you saw it in 1995, or at least saw the commercials for it. Toy Story was the first... It was Toy not... Story was the very first Pixar movie. Okay, yes. all right. Because, okay, I just, I just yeah. thought it was So what did you guys think when you first saw it? I was impressed. Both uh, the technology that was used and the color made me feel like a kid again. And it's told from the viewpoint, the perspective of of the kid who has the toys. And had I seen that when I was much younger, I probably would have had a different reaction. But as an older... My reaction. (laughs) Well, my reaction was, wow, to be a kid again. Because I was forced to think from how a kid would play with his toys... But to create this whole new world, first of all, I thought it was very creative. But what I liked was they were dealing with topics that had a depth to them without preaching to you about the importance of family, uh, the importance of being a kid. And uh, and then again, to have Tom Hanks and uh, Tim, Tim Allen, Allen. Tim Allen uh, and have them as new characters. That was just fun, you know. Yeah. So on a lot of levels, that worked for me. And I, I was just glad to see a success because what they were doing was so radical and it grew. And they had a lot of fun developing these characters over, what, four films? Yeah, and probably seem to be more. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I want to say one thing really quick, then I'll ask Mom, is one thing you just said there was, like, to be a kid again watching this, and being a kid, it's interesting that you hear you say that, because, you know, I was a kid who did grow up with it. And now I'm, like, hanging out with these kids at work, and I was talking to Julius about this when we saw Spider-Verse, when we saw the new Spider-Verse movie, where, like, it's... crazy to imagine if this was out when i was a kid mm-hmm. like the fact that because kids are growing up at my job they all have like miles more like miles morales is their spider-man most of them like they know the tom hall movies but they all watched spider-verse like 
millions of times, and they all want to go see the new one. And they all are excited for the next one because it ends with a cliffhanger. But you know what I mean. It's like, it's interesting mm. to like look now and be like, that is so much more sophisticated than what Toy Story was, but Toy Story was still such a radical leap forward for when I was a kid. But I also was at the age where it's still, I took it for granted because it was just, oh, it's just what, that's just what Toy Story and VeggieTales look like. It's not mm. like it was a new thing to me because it was... I was right there, like, I was born, like, probably two or three months before it came out, Mm -hmm. so. But, Mom, what did you think when you first saw Toy Story? Actually, I think of this, for all Pixar, I think they're very creative movies. I think about um, just the the fact that the toys all talk to each other, but then when a human shows up, they just don't, you know? And it's an imagination thing, because I don't know about you when you were little, but at least when I was little, my dog, my dolls would talk to each other you know and um to me they've always been very creative i think pixar at least for me a lot of it is more because you guys were young then and you wanted to also take them to a movie that was appropriate for your age it's like how we just took like spider-man's out right now but we took the kids to the elemental right yes you you know it's going to be good for all ages Mm -hmm. so uh, that's a lot of it as well but i'm just saying to me the creativity with it there's also some adult stuff, actually, in those movies. It's always interesting to talk about um, The Incredibles as someone as a kid who watches it and you just completely, you know, superheroes. And you watch as an adult and the actual plot of the movie is that she's thinking he's having an affair on her. Like, that's what mm-hmm. the actual plot of that film is. And completely goes over, as a child, when <laughs> The Incredibles came out, over completely head. goes over my head. I don't think that's what that movie's about at all. Okay, well, Mom um, kind of answered our next question, but we can kind of... I actually told this story on this podcast. We were at um, Ryan Bell's open house, I remember. I think it was around the time Up came out. I think we had either just seen Up or we were seeing Up the next day. Mm. And I remember we were... T- I think the, the money, like the numbers of the weekend had already come in, right? Like they set out and like it made like $60, $70 million. You know, at the time, that's... Today, it's a lot of money. That's more than Elemental made last week. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's... But Elemental is kind of... But that's like that's more than like what Coco made, right, on opening weekend. Mm-hmm. But like I remember at the time, uh, I don't remember why I remember this conversation so vividly. But I remember Ryan Bell talking to you about Pixar, and I remember him saying like Pixar has developed a brand where it doesn't matter if your main character is not a robot that doesn't talk, or a rat that can cook, or an old man who's just cranky at kids. People mm-hmm. are going to show up because it's the new Pixar movie. So mm-hmm. going off of that, what do you think the Pixar brand is today? Now that, like, I know you guys, I think the last one you guys really went to go see was Coco. And that's because I dragged you guys to it because I was like, you guys are going to like this movie. And I was right. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to yeah, take credit for that. No, we, I, we, did, we did enjoy that movie. Um, um, and besides, of course, like, I know you saw Incredibles 2 and Toy Story, but I'm thinking of, like, the original movies. I think they've Still. become, to me, they've become more um, socially focused in many ways. I think about the old ones, okay? Monsters, Inc. I was going to I love Monsters, I think Inc. Monsters, I, I think Monsters, Inc. is the most creative. I've said that almost. Yeah. I think it's the most creative concept Pixar ever did. Um, <laughs> and to me, that creativity causes people to want to see, to see what they want to do. But the elemental, I'm talking about elemental. Elemental, to me, is perhaps... A regular story that could be not that that has been transformed into the elements. Yeah, I, I I would just add when you think of Pixar, they work on several levels, and that's why I think Disney is very smart. They make movies a parent will go and won't be bored by them. Danny, I have a question for you. Why are we here? Well, because it's a detour. <laughs> the car goes off off the ramp as Russian agents shoot at us. 
And Jerry Mara goes, what's going on? They're not really Russian. They're like Swedish or something. Yeah, I don't remember. But this is actually the first detour I knew we were going to do when we designed this podcast. Because this is Brad Bird's film after he left Pixar. Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. This is the first time one of these Pixar animators went off and did a live action thing. Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol comes out in 2011. Interesting thought I had while I was watching it last night is this was considered a long-delayed fourth movie after the third one underperformed for a variety of reasons. But the thought I had when I was watching this is that it was five years in between Ghost Protocol and Mission Impossible 3, which is the exact same gap between Mission Impossible Fallout and Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Brad Bird got it pretty soon after um, Ratatouille. I remember right, the thing was, Brad Bird has a dream project that he still has not done, which is a grand disaster epic about the 1906 earthquake. And around the time of Ratatouille Incredibles, he went around pitching the studios, and they're all like, me, like, no way, we're not going to give that to you. Uh, you've never done a live-action movie. So Brad Bird hooks up with J.J. and Tom Cruise. I presume Tom Cruise, you know, watched The Incredibles and was like, oh my gosh, this guy knows how to do action. Let's get him to do the next Mission Impossible. And, you know, hooked up with JJ, all that. And Brad Bird, sure enough, was signed on to direct Mission Impossible 4. This got critical acclaim. At the time, it was considered by everyone the best Mission Impossible yet. It revived the franchise. It was one of the biggest hits. I think it was the biggest hit that Christmas, if I remember right, which was a huge deal because everyone thought Sherlock Holmes 2 was going to do better than it. And it beat Sherlock Holmes 2. Rather famously, and we talk about this with my parents, but we can talk about it too, this film is was considered the IMAX showcase, and I think it's still considered the number one IMAX showcase for a blockbuster movie that isn't directed by Christopher Nolan. Um, and that's because the entire Burj Khalifa sequence was shot with real IMAX cameras, where that gave you vertigo in a crazy way when you saw this in IMAX. And the movie, the reason I brought that up right now is because the movie actually opened a week prior only in IMAX theaters, which is something no other film has ever done. And it made like $11 million opening weekend, which is kind of crazy for 2011, you know, the amount of IMAXs that were around. The fact that they were able to do that. But anyway, yeah, it opened. It was huge. Brad Bird got great acclaim for his direction. And isn't this like three years before The Dark Knight? No, no, no. This is, um, The Dark Knight is what basically gives Brad Bird the idea to shoot this in IMAX. I think The Dark Knight being as huge as it was in the format um, was what gave Brad Bird the idea. like, I'm going to shoot this sequence in IMAX. Uh, I'm trying to think what else has been shot on IMAX. I always talk about um, Hunger Games, Catching Fire, was a movie that was shot on IMAX that is I always like point to as like, man, this movie was crazy how they used the IMAX. Because um, all the sequences in the arena are in, with IMAX cameras, and everything else in that movie is not. Off the top of my head, um, Force Awakens shot with IMAX cameras, Catching Fire, Nolan movies, of course, and Star Trek Into Darkness. And Force Awakens had one sequence shot in IMAX. Batman v Superman was shot in IMAX sequences solely, which I've never seen in IMAX. First Man, which is the only movie I've seen in real IMAX, because it was the one thing I saw at Navy Pier when Navy Pier was here. And then Wonder Woman and No Time to Die were also shot in IMAX, but were never screened in IMAX because... Oh, and of course, Mark, you saw Nope yeah. as the most recent film that was shot in IMAX. And then I will be seeing Oppenheimer by the time this episode comes out next week. So, Mark... Light the fuse. This is specifically where I'm supposed to say how we all saw it. And mom, you said you don't remember how you saw this. I remember I saw it then. I didn't see it with you. You don't remember? It's no, okay, I no. do not remember Okay, so the way this happened was we went to go see it, if I remember right, not necessarily opening weekend, but before we went over to Ohio for Christmas. Because we saw it at the IMAX 
Burj Khalifa, uh, is that his name? The, the name of the building? Burj Khalifa? Bur- you know what I mean. The big building in that movie. I always forget the name of the building in Dubai. The Khalifa, whatever. I think no. it's Burj Khalifa. That scene was shot in IMAX, which is why when you said during the movie, this would be crazy in 3D, I'm like, well, we saw it in crazier than 3D because the IMAX, you know, filled up the entire wall, and it was like you were looking straight down when we saw it in IMAX. Mm. But we saw that without Mom. I think Mom might have been at work. I don't think, all, maybe you also weren't interested in it because I don't think we were into Mission Impossible until we saw this one. Kind of like X-Men, how we weren't into it until we saw Days of Future Past. Then Mom, I think the rest of us went to see like War Horse or something with Aunt Linda. And Mom and Aunt Amy went to see um, Mission Impossible instead, while we went to go see a different movie, because we'd already seen Mission Impossible. And then I think we watched the other three at home after. But yeah, I think Mission Impossible, the reason I brought you guys on is because I think Mission Impossible, I think if I, actually, I'm pretty sure if we don't see the new one together, it'll be the first time we haven't seen one of them together. Because I remember, I think I saw Fallout with you guys too, the last one, and I remember we saw Rogue Nation on Tim's birthday. Which he wasn't a fan of because he just he was like, "Why are we here?" <laughs> He's like, "This isn't my thing." Um, yeah, so I was like, "Well, Mission Impossible is definitely the movies, at least the current franchise, my parents like the most." I think I know we were talking about this at dinner. Also, is like the only movie this summer I think you guys want to see is a new Mission Impossible. Well, that is what I said. Yes. Yeah. Which is a shame about Barbie, but it's okay. <laughs> what do you guys think about Mission Impossible in general? Like, the movies, again, the movies. We will get to the TV, but, like, what do you think about these movies and the Tom Cruise Mission Impossible series? Well, to me, they're night, night and day different from the TV series. Tom Cruise is a great actor. I remember watching the scene we just saw on Protocol. It actually, you know, the, the, the first time I saw it, and he had, you know, he's going up the side of the building, two things pop in my mind. One is, how could he have these gloves and suction cups fail, and so he's going to fall, and it's really creepy, and the second thing is I, one of my first jobs in California when I was out of college was as a business editor at a major bank, which was a 61-story building. And I'm thinking about what would that be like? I, when I was up there on the 39th floor, that's where my office was, it was amazing to think, you know, I looked down, not only are there ants there, but like if there's a windstorm in L.A. or something and it hits there, things could change. So here we, here we are watching this movie, and by the way, there's a sandstorm in it, right? Yes. I was thinking actually very specifically, though, of what you're saying. I think about the shot you get where you see the glove fly away after it sticks to the yeah. building. Like, they yeah. very purposely linger on that glove falling down to show you how far away that is. Falling. Yeah. But, yes, there's a sandstorm, too, if you want to talk about the sandstorm. Well, we have no sandstorms in L.A. We, <laughs> we just have earthquakes. <laughs> but I was going to say that I don't like heights. And one of my first jobs was on that, you know, 39th floor of a building that's about 60. And when I watched them up there, I got creepy. The only thing that was creepier than the building was that huge sandstorm, which is obliterating the screen throughout. So those are the two things I think about that movie that really popped for me. But I find myself always comparing it to the TV series because I love the series. To me, I enjoy all the Mission Impossible because I think they're very escapist. The plots are always interesting. And they always win, essentially. They, 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 they never... We're sick for now, don't. but we know there's a part one coming out soon. I don't well, I know. I know, not, I know. <laughs> well, you know that they're not going to win there because you have a second movie coming. But generally speaking, it resolves itself yeah. all the time. So you, it's a set formula, but it's always entertaining because it's always different. This movie I thought was interesting because I was starting to... I saw different things this time. You know, um, some of the highlights... Like when Jeremy, 
Renner. Yeah, did you say Jimmy Renner? It's fine. Uh, you know who comes, you're talking about. It's Brant. I don't even Brant. remember his first name. Yeah, I don't know. I remember his first but, name. But when he shows up, um, I, I just remember, you know, that one scene where they're in the train. Yeah. And he leans back to open up where the... He knew that those were there, I really believe. Because I, I think he was... To, maybe it has not been revealed yet, and maybe it's never been revealed. But I think he was working with the secretary. He and the secretary worked together. And so he knew, to, in my opinion, that those... And that's how he showed them to him, when he leaned against her accidentally, and all of a sudden all the... No, I, 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 I hear you. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. No, I agree. I also think... Well, I don't, I don't want to argue with you, because I think you're right. I think that's one of those things where this is a movie that... Because, you know, this is a Pixar podcast. This is from Brad Bird, who before this had only worked in animation... I think that's something that I think, you know, in animation, you'd be like, oh, it's just a gag. But here I think, yeah, there has to be more of a deeper meaning behind it. Mm -hmm. You know, you're playing in this different realm where there's more realism, even though, yeah, you still get the crazy stunts, plotty action type of stuff. What's also interesting about this movie, at least to me, is that they actually failed multiple times. And, and they recovered from it, but they did fail multiple times. I th- we had a guest actually on our Ratatouille episode. Um, he's a friend of mine, Jay. Who this is his actually he was mad that he was I was like you have to come on for that too because I want my parents on for Mission Impossible they don't know yet but I'm gonna ask <laughs> them on um, but he really wanted Mission Impossible and in that he talked right to the same director he mentioned that this is the Mission Impossible where things always fail like every bit of technology always fail. it's always the worst thing that can happen happens which up to this point in the series really isn't how it is mm-hmm. and it's even after the point in the series that's not how it is this is constantly improving to try to get out of your situation that is rough. But what do you think about the Mission Impossible? Like as oh, you already said that. Never mind. Oh, I still enjoy all of them. I mean, we watched the other one. What was it? You said Rogue Nation. Yes, we watched that one. It was on TV recently, and we watched that again. I'm like, okay, this is still entertaining. I was surprised when you said that this was from 2011 because I thought it actually carried well from you know from from 11 years ago. I I still I definitely had that thought too while watching. I was like, this feels like. I don't want to say like last summer, but like if you told me this and Top Gun Maverick came out right after each other, I'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. Like maybe the effects are a little bit better in Top Gun, but other than that, like I think the story holds up. Oh, and the phones. The phones mm-hmm. kind of give away when it is, but that's about it. Dad, is this, would you say you think this is your favorite of them? The, his most recent one I liked a lot, but I think the unique, the stunts were incredible. I'm not saying that other movies don't have incredible stunts. That's. A key difference from the TV series, but of course you have a huge budget when you're talking movies. For me, yeah, I, I think this is, and of course, I, I won't say I have an affinity, but I have an identity with this movie because this huge, you know, here you are in this Arab nation that got this opulent, huge building. I'm, that's not a set. That's the, that's the huge uh, super size scraper. And like I say, I was in a large one in, in LA, but it's nothing compared to this. I mean, I imagine myself being there. It's almost like getting vertical when you think about the guy coming down the side of the, you know, yeah. on the outside of it. Well, no, no yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the sequence of him climbing the uh, tower, the Burj Khalifa, not, I think it's obviously the centerpiece of this movie. I think it is the point of this franchise where it shifts from being merely spy movies to also the stunt spectacle as well. I would add one other thing, though. We're talking about the action here. The end of the movie, I'd forgotten the end of the movie, where he sees his wife. I hope that's not a spoiler alert. It's everyone's fine. seen it's it. A, it's a 10-year-old <laughs> movie. This is a podcast Thank where you. we expect the listeners to be watching along. Yeah. What? But, and, <laughs> you'll find out why I just hit, hit your father. <laughs> Because no. I was going to tell you what my favorite movie was. All right, then go ahead. Your favorite scene in the movie? No, my favorite total uh, of the Mission Impossible, because I was looking up who 
the character actor was, and as soon as you saw that, that made you possibly think of her. Oh, no, I know who you. Th- I, I knew your answer, Mom. Yeah, the Philip. That one. Where, it's the one. Phil, it's the one right before this. Miss Marvel yeah, three. Yes, uh, the with Philip Seymour Hoffman and his wife being involved in it and, and Which saving is Michelle her. Michelle again. Yeah. Since I know you googled yes. her. Or were you Googling Philip Seymour Hoffman? Yeah. No, no. I was, I was Googling him because oh. I couldn't remember his name. Because oh, yeah, I know yeah. he's he's deceased, but I yeah. couldn't remember his name. But I thought that that was... I liked that one just because of the interaction with That's definitely personal. the one that's most focused, I feel like, on Ethan as a character. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other ones... I was, I was saying this to you guys earlier. I watched Indiana Jones 4 again earlier today. And my main takeaway was um, that the issue with that movie isn't really even the aliens and stuff. It's that... Indiana Jones doesn't really change. There's no arc mm. to him where they would say, I think each Mission Impossible movie that's good will find an arc in some way. Mm-hmm. I don't even think Ethan has much of an arc in here, but Jeremy Renner does. So, well, I, Simon Peck kind of goes through. Well, I I, as your dad was saying, though, the part at the end when he saw his wife in this one yeah. was very sweet. Yeah, and my point really in all this is that action movies don't often have character development. We've had so many movies in this series that we know the characters already, but they don't ignore them. Even though she has no speaking lines at the end, their nonverbals are telling you there's not only a relationship, but there's a wistful loss that they can't be together. And at the end of the movie where you're saying, oh, it's all resolved, you're reminded that these are people. And to me, that's good script writing, and it's also character development where you will care. It's, yeah. it's more just hero versus villain. No, I agree. Yeah. I'm with the opinion there's no bad Mission Impossible movie except for the second one, which is the one where it's just Tom Cruise as an action star. You mm-hmm. guys, I don't, we don't get that much into it because you guys didn't watch it. It's the, but it's the one that's very over the top action. But I think three is obviously one, two, three, right? The first one's just the first one. Second one's where it does dumb action. Third one's when they introduce his wife, mm-hmm. who, you know, keeps coming back or is referred to in the past, you know? I don't know. Like, I do think that's the turning point, story-wise, I'd say, the third one is. Well, Whereas, it's a continuation story. Yeah. But it just struck me, though, and maybe you guys have already noticed this, is that the a lot of the characters are repeating characters, but the female, the women leads are not. Until the next one. Because in the next one they introduce, um, I forget her character name, but Rebecca Ferguson plays her. But she's the one who's like the counter spy in the fifth one, and then she joins up with him in the sixth one. Okay. In the new one. Okay. And also, though, I would say though, even before that, mom, um, I don't. I think until this one, also, I think the only one to repeat besides Tom Cruise is Ving Rhames' character, who does show up at the end as Luther. Not it? Simon Pegg, though. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Simon Pegg does have a very small role in the mm. third one. I'm sorry. I always, he's like in the third one. I th- I haven't watched these actually since the last one came out. I don't know why I can remember this so well. But then, yeah, I'd say after this, they do. This is really where, outside of the woman who you pointed out, right? I think most of these characters do return in up, like later movies. Mm-hmm. I do think it's funny how I don't know if you ever knew this. Um, Jeremy Renner was supposed to come back for the sixth one, but his role was going to be to die in the first scene. He was like, uh, "I'm okay. <laughs> like, uh, I would rather leave this door open for me to come back in an actual role. So, I, no, you can't. You, you shouldn't have me back right now for this." Okay, so Dad. Now we can talk about the TV show, which I never okay. watched. You grew up watching the TV show, and I remember you tried to get me into watching the DVDs. Um, 
I remember not really being that excited. I like the Superman DVDs, I remember. I liked watching the <laughs> I did too, Superman because when I saw them, they were in black and white, but they filmed them in color, uh, and it's cool to have the DVDs and see them. I, I, I liked <laughs> Superman, watching Superman growing up with you, but I was not on the Mission Impossible. But do you ever wish these movies were more like the show? Because I know these movies are more action, was the show was more like an espionage type of thing. Do you, you ever wish these movies would go more in the vein of the show, or are you happy with them being like the stunt-filled spectacles they yeah. really have become they, they, yes they do have stunts but i'm happy to say that the, i think they carry over the spirit of the television show because they have clever tricks being played on people well like in this one where they had two negotiators for one side and for another mm-hmm. and they faked them out meaning the team from mission impossible working to make this exchange and trick the enemy they use the sort of tricks not just the the technical things with elevators being stopped but with disguises and moving around so the spirit is there you are right in saying though that this one is way the and and that's part of blockbusters ever since uh, you know you had these blockbusters in the jaws series and the indiana jones series you're really looking at situations where the audience is expecting the big blow-ups and obviously movies have the budget that TV never could. I thought the TV series, I think it was Bruce Geller was the, the uh, executive on that who came up with the whole idea, are fabulous because with a little budget, they did so much impersonations, disguises, tricks. You know, I could go over a couple of plots. I'm not going to do that, but they're very clever. There is some cleverness in this, but these, you know, they're more explosions. They're more, well, the new movie that's coming out is all about... Probably everyone's seen the previews for this summer's movie where you're having having a hero go down this huge almost ski hill with yeah, we and saw he's, the, he's when shooting we into the avatar. They yes. That like five minute behind the scenes. He's thing. going up in the air and coming down with a parachute. Uh, that's fabulous. Who could afford to do that in the TV airs? Actually, that series is on, I think it came out in 67, 68 and went on for about six years. I love the actors. There are two actors who stayed all the way through it, which is fabulous. I could go into what that meant for me living in California, watching that late at night. I enjoyed that quite a bit. But uh, yeah, I think the spirit of the TV series is kept and is amplified on in in the movie series. I also think, to jump off of that a bit, and maybe you can agree, I think this is the one that actually takes it back to that. Because I remember, you know, in the first one, I, actually, I don't know if you guys remember this or you realize this, is the the twist bad guy in the first one is supposed to be the character from the TV show, Jim Phelps, mm-hmm. which was like a big controversy mm-hmm. at the time, kind of similar nowadays whenever like, you know, like they come out with a new Star Wars movie and it's like, they changed something, you know? Since then, like the first three are kind of just Tom Cruise. Even the one you like, it's not really a team effort. I don't, I don't, because I know there are women. Like there's um the other there's another woman mm-hmm. spying that one, but I don't remember anything she did in that movie. Whereas mm-hmm. this one, Benji's got stuff to do. I think Jane's her name. She's got stuff to do. Of course, Jeremy Renner's got his stuff mm-hmm. going on. I think this is the least Tom Cruise show of them, mm. yeah. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then after it, it uh, keeps it that way. Cause, mm-hmm. Also, because Tom Cruise is the guy you do the crazy stunt, You have they all have their own roles to play. But, Mom, I remember last year, I'm reading exactly what I have written down. I remember last year you had some trepidation before seeing Top Gun Maverick, which I'm now realizing this trepidation must have been the last time I went to AJ's, because I remember having this conversation with you at AJ's. We, we went to AJ's before this, which is a pizza place by us. But you had trepidation before seeing Top Gun Maverick, even with the reviews out, because you, you said, I'm really only into Mission Impossible, which isn't entirely true, because I remember you liked the one where he um, time travels, the, the Groundhog Day one, mm. which is Edge of Tomorrow. 
but you said it's like you like it Mission Impossible more than anything else. And then I remember when we saw Top Gun, the first thing you said when I was in the theater to me is that new Mission Impossible looks great. You weren't even ready to talk about Top Gun. The first thing you brought up was the new Mission Impossible. You kind of already answered this, but what do you think makes this really stand out, if not just from the other franchise? Because this is like the only franchise you really follow now, I feel like. But even like from these other Tom Cruise movies like Edge of Tomorrow and Top Gun Maverick. Because even Top Gun Maverick, you know, it has the stunts too, right? I think it's more, I personally just like, I like those type of movies. I like to read that type of book. So to me, that right there makes it a better fit for me that I enjoy it more. The fact that you just mentioned that it's more of an ensemble, probably what make it does make it good. I enjoyed it. I enjoy the ensemble aspect of it. I remember, now I'm going to say, because I, I think I said it to you when I told you I need you on this episode. I'm going to repeat back to you the gist of what you said to me when I asked you about Top Gun Maverick last year, which is you define these movies in a way, I feel like summed them up in the, actually, if I remember right, my boss recently ran through it like in January, all these movies, because they were on Paramount Plus or something, like a, a new streaming service they got. And I was like, my mom loves those movies. And she t- explained to me like this. And <laughs> the reason you said to me when I, you said that you weren't interested to talk about Maverick is that you like Mission Impossible movies because they're like your romance models. They're all the same. And it's kind of like what you already said here. You always know how they're going to turn out. Because really, Ghost Protocol, the, the plot is about the same as any of them. The only difference is whatever they're going after. This one's the nuke. And the first one, they're going after like a list of agents. I just wanted to have that on mic because even if you didn't say it exactly, I wanted to give you credit for that. Because I do think it's actually the best sum up I've heard anyone put these movies as. Because also because, you know, most of these people I read some of, so they're just like people whose jobs are to talk about movies. So to hear it from you, I was like, yeah, that is a pretty good analysis on why most people like these movies, I feel like. I would like to say, too, you know, I had been talking about the spirit of the original TV series versus what's in the movies both of them are highly successful in creating not only tense situations, but seemingly unresolvable situations. And when I watch a TV show and they go to a commercial, I say, why can't this just be like a movie and go right through? Because I don't know how they're going to get out of it. You know, the nice thing is, you know, they are. Yeah. I feel the same way about the movies. I mean, there are situations we're in watching the one we watched tonight. You say, how in the world is he going to get out of this? Or is there a traitor in the midst here? And if so... They're dumb. They don't know what could happen. So that type of tension obviously is intentional, and it sustains the movie and it sustains the television show. What is nice to know is it's cerebral enough that as a member of the audience, you're sort of thinking, what, what are they going to do about this? I think this isn't a question I've listed, but I do think it would be a good thing to talk about, which is just Mission Impossible. I don't have any data points in front of me, obviously, but I believe it is the probably the only franchise right now that skews like your age if that makes like older like mm-hmm. i would be considered part of the younger audience for a mission impossible movie why do you think that is do you think it's just because like tom cruise is the last movie star um do you think it's because it's not like a spider-man movie where it's just cgi everywhere and people flying every like and there's no because st- there's obviously stakes to because they're doing the real stunts too and tom cruise is risking his life but what, why do you think it is that this is what appeals to your generation more so than say, the superhero movies of today, or... Um, part, of it's, part of it might be the fact that they're superhero m- yeah. movies that doesn't necessarily appeal to us, because these people are people, Yeah. instead of having extraordinary super, superheroes to yeah, me. And I, yeah, I agree with you. I also want to say, this, this series goes back to when? This series has been out for more than 12 think, years, hasn't it? I think it's actually... One thought I had while watching this is... Um, 
I remember, so I believe it started in 1996, maybe right. 97. I think that, the, that's really? what I'm I thinking. I could Google the first one. Oh, wow. So we're talking about 25 it years. It takes it's been forever sustained. between the movies, too. I think it's put appealing to several generations. And I think when it first came out, it appealed to your generation. And part of that is because people want to go to movies, and entertainment means suspense. And it means good acting. And even though we think of Tom Cruise as somewhat of a lightweight, I think you can see that not only physically he takes care of himself, but he cares about the plots. He cares about the characters. So I think that's what sustains it. I think it's cross-generational. Maybe not as strong for your generation, but I still think they're hooked by it. Well, I, I think also for me to say, like, like for example, like Top Gun came out last year. It did skew older, but also everyone my age went to see Top Gun Maverick, mm-hmm. right? I'm curious. I'm very curious as someone who, you know, likes following movies. I'm curious how this new Mission Impossible will go now that I think Tom Cruise actually has younger fans. Mm-hmm. Whereas earlier, I don't think he did. Hmm. Um, I think Top Gun gave him a lot more credibility among people my age and younger. Um, do you think, though, also might be, because you were saying this about how he keeps himself fit, I think it is also, I've been referring to this a bit, I think it's the stunts, too. Like, yes, yes. Because um, the fact is, I'm even thinking, um, I'm trying to think, oh, actually, no, this would be a good example recently, is, um, it's not even an action movie, but the new Guardians of the Galaxy movie, it was interesting to watch one of these superhero movies where, I don't know if you guys, you guys probably don't know this, that movie holds now the record for most prosthetics used in a movie. Oh, really? So... All the aliens looked way better than I'm used to seeing in these movies because they actually did makeup. Well, they did makeup on the people. Like, you know, I'm so used to these all looking fake. Like, mm-hmm. so it's like, um, we're like, I think that's part. I don't think Top Gun Maverick breaks out the way it did if it wasn't real planes they were flying around, right? Exactly. I uh, would agree. Uh, and I think it's something where there's a lot of artificiality. And I think for you guys who grew up in the days of like the 80s and the 90s, we're like, Terminator 2, which I remember watching you guys. Like they, they Well, but, like, the fakest thing in it is the bad guy. And they actually, like, flip a truck in, like, the action sequences. So there's, like, real weight to it. And that's what Tom Cruise is always about. I think it always throws me off. And I can't think of an example. I don't think there's one in this movie. But whenever there's, like, a really obvious CGI moment in Mission Boss movie, I'm always like, that's weird. Like, because I'm mm-hmm. not used to seeing it. Um, actually, I can think of an example. Is, um in the sixth movie... Uh, there's a scene where he jumps out of the plane with Henry Cavill's character in that one. Okay. And it's really cool initially, but then in the middle of it, Henry Cavill gets struck by lightning. And obviously that had to be CGI. And I'm oh. always, when that happens, I'm always like, why'd you do that? Like, now mm-hmm. this isn't as cool anymore because I know you've mm-hmm. touched this shot. And it's like, it would like I understand why you need it for like the action to work as you planned, but couldn't you have had him like just pass out, mm-hmm. you know, from like air pressure or something like that? That's beside the point. I will tell you something, though, funny to me, and I noticed it today when I was watching Tom Cruise, is when he's running, I actually do wonder if they're speeding up the film (laughs) to make him run that fast, because, I mean, he was booking it. (laughs) uh, I remember making a joke last year during Top Gun Maverick, which is, um, you know, it's a movie where they're all in planes the whole time, and yet they still found a way in the third act of that movie to give you that classic Tom Cruise run, Mm. where they're, like, on the base trying to get out of a plane, and I was like, well... There it is. There's Tom Cruise running again. <laughs> it's, his, it's his signature. You have to have him run. And then, of course, I don't, I don't know if you guys remember this. I think uh, during Fallout, he broke his leg in one of his runs or broke oh. his ankle. And they kept the shot in the movie of him breaking his ankle. Mm. Um, and you can, you can watch for it. It's like he misses the, the jump and the next shot is him just pushing himself up mm. like months later after he let his ankle heal. But okay. the shot of him breaking his ankles in the movie. But anyway, so specifically about Ghost Protocol. Do you think this movie has any weak points? Do you think there's anything that could be improved here? 
I will keep myself quiet here because then Mark can, we, I can talk about Mark what I think is wrong with this movie. You know, that's an interesting question you asked because I do feel the, the final scene in that movie uh, where he's trying to get the, the suitcase back and the guy is, it drives, the, the villain drives his car over onto this platform and they have a almost a life and death struggle to me was too long and over the top but you know that's part of movies i i, I compared to what happened in the fugitive remember when the and that was staged in chicago by the way at a local hotel but they just have a knockout brawl and you think one of these guys is going to how can they have this energy to do it one of these guys is going to kill the other that's hollywood for you and i wouldn't want to be the director to say where do you cut it but still it seems like that that was a little much at the end it's like and and of course in the meantime the the time is ticking down less than a minute before this bomb is going to go off and destroy everything. Yeah. So. I will tell you what I thought was funny was when he did hit mission and said, save mission, and then it didn't stop it. Yeah, it was well, yeah. It's, uh, there are a couple moments in this movie that still make me like smile, and that's one of them. Also, surprise! <laughs> and also, I don't. I, you probably did notice, Jim, that um, part of the. The original theme was music was in that movie. I yeah, I was not probably. I will talk about this, Mark. I thought the score in this movie was probably. I don't want to say it's the best Mission Impossible because I haven't just rewatched them all, mm-hmm. but I do think it utilizes that theme more than most of the other ones do. Mm-hmm. And that's because of the composer's Michael Giacchino, who we've talked about in this podcast before. I'm sure I'll talk with Mark about because we always talk about Michael Giacchino when he comes up because he he did Up, for example, okay. Ratatouille. Like that is the thing he did Ratatouille and Incredibles, and this is the director of them, so he okay. just brought his guy on. But I think he also did do the third one because he also did the theme for Lost, which okay. is what J.J. came from. J.J. Abrams came from before he did the third That's one. Right. Uh, Mom, what would you improve about Ghost Protocol? If you could, or do you think there's anything that could be improved? About it? I'm sure there is something, but uh, let me think on it, and then we might come back to <laughs> we'll the come question. Come back to it, okay? Because I, I'm sure there has to be because it's, it's not your favorite, so there's got to be uh, a way. I did for escapism. It was a, it was a, it, I enjoyed it. But I, I mean, I like the other one too. That one when we saw recently, the other one. What I can't think of the name. Oh, uh, you're thinking of Rogue Nation. Yes, I liked TV. Rogue Nation too. I thought yeah. that was. I think Fallout's the best of them all. But there, I think Rogue Nation, this one are pretty close for second place for me. I'll give I'll give more of my general thoughts when I talk tomorrow because I do have detailed thoughts on the movie. Oh, you didn't like uh, the third one then that much? Third one is good. It I know what my I, I, I just know what my ratings are on Letterboxd for these. Okay. Is I know that four point five for Fallout, a four for these, and then a three point five for the third one. Probably because uh, it's more of a interpersonal, I or more focused on Ethan than For me, else. I think that movie is held together by Philip Seymour. Uh, he was very good <laughs> in that. Okay, very good bad I think guy. him. I think him and Henry Cavill are the only two villains these movies ever had that were actually really great. I think mm-hmm. there's a lot to be said about the villain here that I'm sure Mark and I will talk about because we'll talk about John Wick because it's the guy who's the bad guy in John Wick, and he's way better in John Wick. Okay, well then I'll move on to the next question, which I can actually jump off a bit of what Dad said to get to, which is you talked about very briefly the how it's a movie and it gets a bit over the top, which is, you know, I said this is from the director of Ratatouille and Incredibles. This is like the one thing I kind of give you a warning that we would talk about. Does this make sense to you? What is about coming from animation is prevalent in this film? And I want to talk about something very first that's about Dad and his reaction to movies that will lead us in, which is that, Dad, you have this habit, which is fine. We've talked about before where you will be like, oh, come on, to, like, something in a stunt in a movie. And there's a moment in this movie where that happened, and I think you said it, and I immediately was like, oh, I'm going to bring this one on the podcast. Because it is perfect for illustrating the difference between animation and live action in this movie. Which is when, you know, he's coming down the Burj Khalifa, and he has to make his jump, 
he hits the head, his head on the thing, and all three of them are dangling out of it with one of them, which is something you 100% see in a cartoon. No, that's It's a, completely out of a cartoon. But mm, yet, in the yeah. moment, even though, yeah, you go, oh, come on, I guarantee you in the theater, when that was in IMAX, you were, like, relieved. You were just relieved, because... Because well, you may- get that little beat up, you know, hitting his head, and then they say... But anyway. And maybe that's where they should improve the movie. <laughs> getting rid of that ass. But I also don't think this movie is as, personally, I don't think this movie is as funny as it is if you don't get an animator on it. Mm-hmm. If you look at the ones before, none of them are as funny as this movie is. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I know you guys didn't rewatch the first, so I didn't make, so, Michaela, when she came on for Toy Story, she was like, I'm gonna rewatch the first two, but I'm like, okay, you don't have to, <laughs> but you can. But this is the first one that I think really does aim for the humor also of it, too. Uh, but anyway, is there anything else you could think about coming from anime? I don't want to be the one to be like, Knowing that an anime, or specifically also someone from Pixar, you know, came and did this movie. I was surprised it wasn't more humor, oh, but of course Danny just did. said it was funny. It was. It's more and funny so, than the last three. It's more funny than one, two, and three. I, I think, again, the characterization is really important, and you care for these characters, and there are times when in their disagreement, you almost feel like, uh, oh, they're challenging each other in terms of their relationship, and how's this going to affect them? That's true to life, and you know the thing I like the most about both Toy Story uh, series and The Incredibles is you have characters that you can't you can't really say they're totally multi-dimensional, but still characters you care for. And for people who have watched each one of the Mission Impossible franchise, you know these characters and you care for them. I don't think I've seen. I've seen a majority, but I, have, I haven't seen all of them. And you don't need to see the second one. I think that's what yeah. you haven't seen. You don't need to see the second one. It's not good, and it's never brought up. I'll but take your on. word on that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not one's been relevant, so you don't yeah. need to watch it. <laughs> yeah, I, I just feel people who work in animation and do character development, obviously cartoony can be flippant at times, and it obviously can be unbelievable because you can do things cartoon characters you can never do in real life unless, of course, you have a great special effects artist and some do. I just feel that what the director brings from The Incredibles and other movies he's done, Brad Bird, gives him the ability to think of things outside the box live action directors may not even consider. And then he looks to his special effects team and says, can you do this? So that's great. I think one of the things though that you were talking about how animation possibly can, you already mentioned that scene, where they're meeting the people and getting the diamonds and all that stuff, that yeah. could be something like animation. I don't know because I could see because that straight in the Incredibles, at... like right in the like you know in that island, in the Incredible. I could mm. see that entirely sequence like play out with Mister Incredible, maybe. So you know? to me, um, I actually thought that that was a very good scene though because you could see the differences between what's going on and stuff like that. I thought it was a good. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed that yeah. actually. I would also say um, something I was thinking. You guys kind of agree with you. I think. Even though all of them are like this, I think this one in particular feels very propulsive for a lot of it. I think a lot of that does come from, you know, animation where it's like animated movies are... This is two hours, which isn't short, but it is about what's like... That's about as short as you can make a movie like this, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, stuff like The Incredibles or... Well, not The Incredibles, but like Toy Story is like 80 minutes long, right? Animation is always as short as it can possibly be because you want to not have a lot of work. Right, <laughs> right. Um, and I think maybe the pacing of the movie also could be affected by the animation. That was one thing I uh, specifically I'm thinking about the Incredibles and comparing it to this because mm-hmm. I think Ratatouille. Sure, I don't really know how you could see Ratatouille in this. The Incredibles, sure. There's a lot mm-hmm. of action in the Incredibles and a big team dynamic too. All right, so I have two last questions here. One is from me, and one's from Mark. One of them I've kind of already asked, which is: so you're going to see Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One. You have, as far as I'm aware, you haven't seen 
And I saw Creed 3 with Dad. As far as I'm aware... Oh, you saw The Jesus Revolution too. You seen any other movies this year? Do you not see anything else this year? I don't know, actually. I You're the person I go to the movies with, Dan. Oh, yeah. I, I remember I was a little... Well, I know you wanted to see... Um, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Yes, and that one. The, I have yeah. not seen that yeah. one. But uh, that that has to go more with the fact that that movie corresponds to me how yeah. when I was growing up. So to me, that that's what makes that movie look interesting because it will be like... Because I was talking about seeing yeah. with Aunt Linda. Uh, <laughs> Aunt Linda's my sister, my twin sister. Yeah. Uh, because it's like a year difference in the age of the person. It was a good I would definitely recommend it whenever it's out wherever like on dvd or something you get from the, you know if it's at the library uh, mm-hmm. i really liked it but um, you you usually are the person that we i know i tried to come in from mother's day to go see it with you and then uh, i overslept basically <laughs> <laughs> but um and then dad i know i saw creed with you um yes but yeah i think movies i like are movies where you get to know characters and to see creed after seeing the original rocky balboa and, and a few other ones too with uh, uh sliced Stallone, they're about character and they're about important events. Not that I'm a boxing fan, but I love sports, and so I root for the underdog. So I look for things that, uh, for movies and scripts that are about either people I would care about or historical situations. I mean, that's the only reason I want to see Oppenheimer. Yeah, and I is, Yeah, because I think, well, I was not around in 1945 when it happened. I wasn't born yet. Yeah. <laughs> not that old. But... Having said that, I will also add that the impact of a movie like that and how it changed the world in Japan obviously is not the same. You mean uh, the bomb? You mean you said the, the bomb? Dro- <laughs> the dropping of the bomb, but and I talk about the movie that I'm yeah. hoping to see this summer, Oppenheimer, which is the making of the bomb, yeah. which would change the world forever in the in the 20th century for that century yeah. when we enter the nuclear age. Yeah. So I, I look at movies not that they have to be sober, but I want to, I want characters that have to make important decisions, and I also want events that have impact on our lives. Like, yeah, the last movie, well, not impact on our life, the last movie we all saw as a family was The Fablemans. <laughs> so mm-hmm, yeah. it's yes. not like we avoid necessarily the more dour stuff mm-hmm. with our family. We will go see anything. I was going to say also, I feel, oh, sorry, but, no, no, you no, go no, ahead. No, no, no. Unrelated, totally unrelated. Okay, no, But I'm going to pop this in. You were talking about what movie series that we like. Yeah. I would see another Chris Pine Star Trek movie. Yeah. Okay, I would. No, because yeah, I, I enjoyed the, those. I thought those were very liked, entertaining. Um, well, I don't feel like the second one, but I remember with superhero movies, you really liked the first Wonder Woman, right? Yes, yeah, I did. the first Wonder Woman was really yes. good. Because you guys don't completely write off superhero movies. No, I don't. But I would go, if they did more movies with Star Trek, yeah. with Chris Pine and yeah. the alternate universe well, I remember there was a, there, like they've that. been trying to get that off the ground for years. There was a time when they were going to bring back... I don't know if you remember in the first movie, Chris Hemsworth plays... You probably don't remember because you didn't know who Chris Hemsworth was in 2009 when it came out. But Chris Hemsworth played um, Kirk's dad in the opening oh, okay. scene. So they were going to bring him back like with an evil... Like a time travel one from the Mirror Universe as the bad guy oh, okay. or something mm-hmm. like that. But then like it fell through because... The last one didn't do well, and it's like, well, Chris Hemsworth costs money. So if you want to do, mm-hmm. like, you, you can't spend this much money on your cast. Because, you know, also, like, you know, you heard Zoe Saldana is like an avatar in Guardians of the Galaxy. So she's a lot of money now, too. Because Pine, of course, they're all expensive now, which mm-hmm. is kind of the issue about. But I hope someday they figure it out. If not, like, they should try to get the same team on something similar. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, that is unrelated. But, no, no, it's fine. But, but that um, is something I was that I would go some, see. Well, to go off of what I said with Wonder Woman and superhero movies, I actually do think 
Well, it's also because I don't live with you guys anymore. I think if I lived with you guys this summer, I think we would have seen Guardians of the Galaxy. At least Mom and I would have, mm-hmm. and we would have probably seen Spider-Verse as well. I did like sub- the original, the first time we saw the Spider-Verse. Oh, the Spider-Verse? Yeah, yeah the, the spi- Spider-Verse. Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. The yeah. original cartoon The original one. cartoon not, one. Not, not the live-action no. remake that no. tried to trick us no. with a couple years no, ago. No, the original <laughs> cartoon one. I, it was very fair. I thought it was a fair Yeah, show. but it's like well also done. just, I know you guys don't necessarily, like, Dad, you didn't want to see Creed, so I went to Creed with Dad. And you didn't want to see either guys. So I tried to see it with Mom. Mm. <laughs> it's, uh, it's also, I think, hard for you guys to agree on a movie. I, I remember, right, I think the only thing you saw, I think the first movie you saw back in the pandemic, which is the only one I remember you seen together that was like a big movie, was in the Heights, which was yes. like, because you guys like musicals. And we saw it also at a nice theater. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I had a family out to get the music box, which I always yeah. love to shout out. And I also remember, just to be relevant to the podcast for a second, I remember you guys asking me, and I've told this story on the podcast before, but since you're here, I'll just say it to you guys. I remember you guys asking me after I went to see Turning Red in L.A., you're like, oh, when's that going to play by us? And I was like, it's not. It's on Disney+. Plus." And you guys were like, oh, we were going to see that. I remember you saying that to me oh, about okay. Turning Red. I, mean, I don't think you've seen Turning Red yet, have you? No. Mark, Mark will want me to ask. It's a running gag. We ask all of our guests, have you seen Turning Red? Never you've no. seen it, right? It's good. No. I recommend it. It's on it, Disney+. It's Plus. the one about the panda. Yeah, it's okay. very good. It's actually... Weirdly, very thematically similar to Are You There, God, It's Me, Mark, you're right. Okay. It's about girls in puberty, which is something I don't know anything about. <laughs> but <laughs> what you're learning yes. by watching. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right, so I have one last question, which is from Mark, which I think is an interesting question that I'm going to add something to. I'll read it exactly as he has it ordered, and then I'll add something to it. Mark wants to ask if there are any movies or shows that you watched when you were a kid that you still watch, like we, because, you know, we're running through all these, like, well, it's like, right now, on my podcast, we're running through every Pixar movie, right? I just watched Toy Story 3, next week I'm watching Cars 2, mm-hmm. uh, so are there any things from when you were a kid that you like to watch? Well, I wasn't, uh, a, I wasn't a kid, but I was 16 years old. It struck me, because I wasn't expecting it quite to be like this, but when I was in high school, age 16, I think I was a junior in high school, uh, we had a field trip to the Cinerama Dome. Oh, that's cool. In, in Hollywood, <laughs> <I'm> yeah. <jealous. laughs> to see what I thought would be a fairly good movie, but I didn't know what to expect, The Sound of Music. Mm. And now it's you know beyond 50 years old, and people still find that on their best list. And I remember of course, seeing it with you guys at the Music Box. And it was yes. very good. It was fantastic. It was very well, the good Music there. Box, we even had an organist playing... Uh, all you had the, actual the overture, too. yeah. I'm sure you had the intermission, and you actually yeah. had the entire movie. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, movies like that—it's not that I, they have to be epic, but uh, they have an impact on you that lasts forever. And I remember uh, seeing that, and I also remember seeing uh, also at the same place. Uh, years before 2001, a space odyssey, and I went with. Actually, my... I think that unless it was a repeat, that would have been after um, that movie came out. I, you, I'm sure you guys know something. I can just You're remember right. when movies came out. Uh, 2001, I believe, was 69 or 68. I'm you are, that, but you then are I correct. know Sound Music was 65. I remember obviously because I was down in Hollywood because yeah. you know I was in Southern California, so it wasn't that far away. Yeah. But what I remember most about it is I took my mom along. And the thing she remembered the most about the movie, because she's getting lost in some of the sci-fi stuff, and especially at the end when they go into the future. But uh, she, 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 what she loved was the uh, just the score of the music. Obviously, it's it's uh, classical music. Yeah, movies can be events that are imprinted on your mind because of the people who are with you, uh, because of what it's teaching you, and because of how it's moving you. 
And that's what I found on those two movies, uh, The Sound of Music and 2001, A Space Odyssey, so memorable that 50 years later, I remember them both. Are you talking about things that we want to watch, continue to watch, or what's the question again? Um, It's like, so we're running for all these Pixar movies, because yes. very specifically because I like Pixar a lot. Mm-hmm. I've always really liked Pixar. Um, and Mark's like, I'm interested why Danny likes Pixar, and it'd be good to have a, not a negative voice, but someone who's a little more questioning of a voice on this. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, Mark grew up with all these too, right? Mark grew up with all these movies. Is there stuff when you were a kid? That was um, like stuff that you would still revisit now. And also, I was going to say this before you cut me off, but it's okay because I liked your story. Or even from stuff when I was a kid or John and Tim were kids that you guys still watch necessarily. Not even with, like, let's say like you watch it, in, like you see it on TV and we're not at home and you guys would just rewatch it. Something like that. Well, we did tape the last episode of Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't. Been t- we actually um one of our most popular episodes of this show is me talking about the last episode of Arthur because we did an episode on um you know the Pixar lamp mm-hmm. um before Toy Story they did like a bunch of shorts for Sesame Street so we did an episode on those Sesame Street shorts where we talked about PBS and Arthur okay. but anyway um more than that <laughs> anything else besides Arthur? well I can tell you what my first movie I ever saw was okay it's the original Mine Years and Mine Years and Arthur oh, yeah, Years yeah, Mine yeah. and Arthur yeah. whatever that one the, cool. the original I've never one. seen it. I've never seen the remake either. Yeah, that was the first movie I ever saw. I remember as a little girl seeing that. I can I can tell you some TV shows that we used to watch. That it's very interesting if you ever watch TV. Like when I was growing up, I I grew up in the '60s, and there was a lot of music TV shows. Yeah, you had the Partridge Family, you had the Monkeys. That's right. Yeah. You know, and we would watch the that. Brady Bunch. Brady Bunch. You we had Batman. <laughs> I've seen Batman. I prefer uh, Dad Superman repeats. So. Well, well, yeah, because Batman's very cartoonish. Yeah. But you have the old Star Trek too. You yes, Trek and we too. actually still actually we do still watch that. That's on. Um, it's on MeTV, right? It's on History MeTV or History. Oh, yeah, one of the Heroes. There's a Heroes TV station, oh, okay. and it's on there. And so we it's an it's on seven o'clock, <laughs> every, Monday through Friday. That's and, cool. and we go through the the old ones. So yeah, Dad and I watch that when there's nothing on TV. Are you guys only? I forget. And you don't. Have, this is very unrelated. But do you guys are you guys only original series, or you watch Next Generation as well? I don't really watch any. I I we do sometimes watch mm-hmm. uh, Captain yeah. Picard, etc. But I um I find it fascinating to see the old old ones because that was yeah. I was a little kid then. I was yeah. That came out like um this. Mid sixties, I know. And then yeah. the movies were later. But. And talk about legs. When I got to UCLA, late sixties, a lot of the underclassmen, after in one of the dorms, they turn on the TV at six o'clock, six to seven, right after having dinner, and would watch Star Star Trek, which was in its final series episode. And talk about legs. I mean, that's still yeah. repeating. So it tells you how well it was, how well it was written. Even though the music sometimes is really hokey, trying to get you scared of what monster was coming next. <laughs> but we also saw Jaws. People still watch Jaws. Yeah, I still watch. I, I saw Jaws in IMAX last year. They put out Jaws and ET last summer again in IMAX. I went to go see both of them. Wow, I didn't yeah. know they did. And then yeah. other things that like was like The Exorcist. I have never seen that. I have no desire to see that. I saw The Exorcist but, last. But that Halloween also was and, what was when yeah. we were growing yeah. up. Well, I mean, I always think it's interesting when I go like to the music box and they're showing something that like. When me and John went to see Singing in the Rain last year, and I remember I'd always watched it with yeah. you growing up. Um, I always think that's interesting to like go back and like really think about, like, whoa, yeah, this would have been shown here, you know, in the 
whenever this was 50s, whenever Singing in the Rain came out. Which is why I like the music box, and I know you guys like it too, to the most extent that you use it. Thanks, Mom and Dad, for being on my show. That's so cool. Awesome. Uh, this is where I'm supposed to say, this is where I'm supposed to ask you to plug yourself. Where can we find you on social media? I don't think any of you guys have public social media, right? Um, what do you mean? Like, what, like, like if, they, if, you, if these if my, people listen to my podcast want to see what my parents are up to, how do they contact you? I assume you don't want to give any information, which I, is I, fine. I really don't have any. You're that's right. fine. I, we, we have minimal social presence. Awesome. I do have Facebook, but that's about it. Thanks again, Mom and Dad. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. You know, I had a good time, but not exactly the film for me. I don't remember seeing this in theaters, so I think this is this is actually the first time I think I've ever seen Ghost Protocol is watching it for this episode. That's kind of crazy. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've just never really been into, like, the Mission Impossible movies, and not even for any particular reason, because there are parts of this movie that I really blew me away, but it's just not my thing. I'm, I'm really glad that I listened before we recorded this to your parents giving their answers, because they were really they were really passionate about a lot of the things that I liked about the movie. Like your dad mentioned how clever the movie is. Like it's not just an action movie. It's actually a sneaky film about them trying to outwit the bad guys and he is right. They they get put in some impossible situations. It's like uh, the line from Mission Impossible 2 where uh, Anthony Hopkins goes, it's Mission Impossible, not Mission Possible. I don't know if that's exactly what Anthony Hopkins has. I'm sure someone listening is like, that's not it. How dare you not know the lore? I don't know the lore. I'm here talking about it and I don't know the lore. Yeah, I mean, there is a very popular Mission Impossible podcast. I was going to listen to their episodes before this to get some, like, their Ghost Protocol episode to get some BTS info. Because they have, like, a ton of interviews with, like, Brad Bird and stuff. But they literally, I think they, because the new one's coming out, they just got rebranded as, like, officially, um, Paramount. The official HBO. No, like, yeah, now now they're the official Mission Impossible podcast. But in doing so, their entire archive got taken down from Spotify. So I was like, well... Great. <laughs> They're like, we hope to have it back well, now soon. now we're the official Mission Impossible podcast. We're the official, unofficial one. I mean, I don't know, listen to them if you want the BTS. We're, I'm not really... I, I, our show is about us, really. Well, I do think... I think it's interesting to at least talk, though, in some way how um, Bradford got involved here. Because it is kind of crazy that his live-action debut was, you know, a Mission Impossible movie. But it also makes sense, because, yeah, you know... Yeah, I mean, yes and no. He's got pretty great calling cards, you know, of the Incredible specifically, but then also Ratatouille as well. And I think also, like, the th- fourth movie in a franchise, people kind of get it at that point, you know? Like, a lot of the production team... It's I mean, maybe it's not like a Marvel movie, where supposedly everything really is locked down and the producers have most of the control... But I imagine that people know how to do it at that point. It's pretty hard to mess it up. Well, the thing here with the the producer control is Tom Cruise. So it's like, he is always like the main force behind Mission Impossible. And then recently, you know, because McQuarrie is like his right-hand man. Christopher McQuarrie is his right-hand man. Now it's like, they both have their hand on the wheel of Mission Impossible. And if no one listening knows who Christopher McQuarrie is, because I had to look him up. He's the guy who wrote The Usual Suspects. And... Since Jack Reacher, he's been Tom Cruise's right-hand man. Because he did a writing pass on this, Edge of Tomorrow, oh, Top Gun Maverick, and then he directed every Mission Impossible since this one. 
And I don't know, maybe this is like gossip about behind the scenes stuff, but apparently when he came in to rewrite Ghost Protocol after the shooting was underway, he made it more about Tom Cruise and less about Jeremy Renner. It was supposed to be the movie where it became about Jeremy Renner at the end, but Christopher McQuarrie came in and made it more about Tom Cruise. I think this is all, and I don't know, I think I got into this with my parents maybe briefly, but this is the movie that codifies, like, this is a team movie. This isn't just a Tom Cruise show. And moreover, Tom Cruise's place on the team is to do the crazy stunts. Like, everyone else has their own, like, Benji, you know, is the comic relief, who's the tech guy. Which is weird, because Ving Rhames comes back in the next one, and Ving Rhames is also the tech guy. Mark's like, I don't watch these movies. I have no idea who Ving Rhames is in these. Well, I know who Ving Rhames is. I just thought he was the guy that you got a beer with at the end. No, <laughs> after he's, you did the mission. He's the main character. He's the main. He's the only one who's in all the movies besides Tom Cruise. That's why he shows up at the end because he's in all the movies besides Tom Cruise. Well, they're both in all. So wait, why is Simon Pegg the tech guy? Probably because in this one, you know, it was um, it was all. Remember again, this wasn't really like this. Mission Impossible was considered a dead franchise after three because the third one disappointed at the box office and it came out around the time tom cruise jumped on a couch and everyone hated right and then in the between i believe i don't have his filmography open i probably should i think tom cruise has a pretty rough few years with like valkyrie like uh disappoints a bit i feel like i've seen valkyrie many times i don't like that amc valkyrie bores me no yeah in between valkyrie and after mission impossible he has a small role in well no he's in lines for lambs which is a war drama that Maybe gets a uh, mixed reviews. I don't know. I've never heard of it. Yeah, negative reviews and disappointing box office. But it's like a smaller movie. Um, then he does Tropic Thunder, which he, people love him in, but it's not like a Tom Cruise movie, right? People love him because he's making fun of himself on that. And then he does Valkyrie, which is a bomb. And then he does Night and Day, which is also a bomb. The James Mangold movie. And actually, after Ghost Protocol being a success, he still is not really a successful person again until Edge of Tomorrow basically forces its way over $100 million. And Oblivion does just okay. Um, Jack Reach is a solid little hit, too, but it's not like... doesn't blow it up. Honestly, Tom Cruise still isn't, like, fully back. It's just that now he's rebranded himself as the stunt guy. It's wild how big his filmography is around War of the Worlds time. Like, he really was... Shooting well, yeah, and then he, it gets destroyed because of him jumping on a couch and everyone, like, thinks he's toxic for a bit. And then mm. he comes back with this, and everyone likes this because it's a good movie. It's a, exactly what you want to see at Christmas with the family, like, right? Like, it's a fun little blockbuster. You don't have to think too much about it. And if you're asking why Simon Pegg's in this, um, I think it was one of those things where, you know, Ving Rhames doesn't really do anything other than shove a Mission Possible movies now. And I think at the time, it was kind of the same thing where he wasn't really doing a lot. And I don't think it was... I I also think, you know, they wanted someone who could really run in the scenes that, like, Benji's there. Because Benji is supposed to be a field agent in this, too. Right? Like, initially when the movie starts, it's Benji and Paula Patton's character, whose name is Jane, but I'm going to only call Paula Patton. Whereas, like, Benji shows up later, so I might still call him Benji. I might call him Simon Pegg. I am Ethan and Tom yeah, Cruise. Benji's Benji, but uh, yeah, I agree. Paula Patton is Paula Patton. Yeah, exactly. And like, also that Leah Seydoux is in this is very bizarre just because it's right when she's breaking out and it's like, wow, yeah, there's Leah Seydoux looking almost exactly as she does today, even though she's like, I think 20, 22 in this. Yeah, I, just, I don't know. She's been an attractive woman for a long time. It's not like, you know, she's, that's not going to change. Well, that's not what I mean, though. It's just that I feel like she always kind of looks this age. But yeah, she was 25 when this came out. Well, I do think it's funny. Maybe part of this is because she's playing someone who is dressed very much like she is in the Bond movie she was in. 
well, this is funny on its own. It's funny too thinking that she's like a Bond, a Bond girl. But it's so funny in that first scene when he pulls up the photo of her on his phone and it says assassin, <laughs> and it basically looks like the phone took a picture of her walking towards him. Like it's not a mugshot or something of her like with different hair. It just it's just her right before she killed him. I do think it's funny. Um, this is a movie you could easily like cinema sim poke a lot, but. People weren't doing that in 2011, and I don't want to do it now. And the reason I, the reason this came to mind is, like, you know, the entire thing with the switcheroo that my parents and I talk about a lot is dependent on them not knowing what each other look like. But while they have a tech that immediately, like, recognizes, this is an assassin who looks like this. And it's like, all right, so the bad guys, I guess, don't have Oh, that yeah. Tech. Well... I, I, I haven't seen other movies. I find it... I think that would kind of be against the code of Mission Impossible if the bad guys had all of the tech that these guys have. Well, you that's know? what actually, after this, these ones are all about. Rogue Nation and Fallout are about... Um the syndicate which is what the ending of this movie sets up where it's like it's a it, like that's they're a rogue nation like that's why it's titled rogue nation is like there's a, an entire network of evil spies actually i did want to mention this briefly with um because we talked about how much money this made i think it's interesting to point out this rogue nation made less than this did this brought back the franchise but rogue nation uh it took to fallout for it to like come back because and my thing there is rogue nation doesn't really have the thing in Rogue Nation is, is Tom Cruise hangs off a plane, right? That's kind of cool. It's not as cool as him climbing the tallest building in the world. Um, and then the third one has the stuff where it's like they're flying. He's flying around on helicopters around mountains, and that's like okay. Well, that that can sell me too, I guess. I was thinking in if I were to like ask Tom Cruise interview questions, I would love to know what is it, if he has inspirations for these stunts because I know that he knows he has to sell himself doing these stunts, but I don't know if you were looking online around the time when this came out and it was like this edited thing showing all of those tom cruise stunts of him announcing that like we're gonna go back to the movies and i'm on a plane and then it was like clips of guys from indian movies doing the same thing in the 70s or something like that i would love to know where all this stuff comes from he's a great showman there was a recent viral clip that i saw where it was like he's at the premiere of mission of the new one and he just goes like if you're talking to a young fan what the first tom cruise movie they should see what should it be and he just immediately goes uh, Dead Reckoning Part 1. <laughs> like, instead, like, he doesn't even have to think about it. He's like, I know exactly. He knows He, he knows exactly how... Because the other thing, too, is he produces all these movies, too. So he just knows how to sell this stuff. To talk about the IMAX again of this, I think the IMAX is really interesting because this came out two years after Avatar. So the thing popular right now is to do this stuff in 3D. And I... And I'm, you listen to my parents. My dad remarked that this should have been in, th like, that would have been crazy scene three. I'm like, well, the IMAX actually, on my Blu ray copy, you can tell the fidelity of camera sh shifts when it goes to the IMAX camera. The image is so much crisper and it's got so much more depth to it. The Burj Khalifa sequence is by far, like, the pinnacle of this movie and the entire franchise, really. I think watching the Burj Khalifa sequence, it would be really weird in 3D, because that is such a detailed image, it would be kind of too much to, like, take in in a 3D space. And something like the wall, it's just lines and buildings, and it's a much simpler image, and I think that plays a little better in 3D than something like the Burj Khalifa where you actually want to see like the cars on the ground and that's part of the appeal of that. I also, I think mostly like it's the direction of that scene actually that is more interesting to me. I didn't super notice, like I know it's IMAX, I can see the IMAX. I think the direction of that sequence 
makes it work and is much more spectacular than anything they do with the camera. Well, no, I'd agree too. I think there's a way to do that sequence and it's just like him climbing or like a lot of people will be like, no, like today people will be like, make it a one, one take, make it a one or it'll be so cool. And it's like, you don't need it to be a wonder. In a, in a way, knowing that the, getting his reflection on the windows is going to give you more depth than, like, anything else here, really, is, like, something that's so cool about this sequence, too. That's such a great moment when the camera sees him, and you know that the camera is inside the room on a crane, and then it moves out and then over him and tilts down to see him. And then somehow, like, keeps turning to the right and going outside along the side of the building. That's just such a neat little, like, look at us do this movie thing. The, the one thing I didn't say with my parents, because I was like, because there was a part of uh, the recording where I say, uh, I asked my parents for what they didn't like about the movie. And I'm like, I know what I'm going to save. I'm going to save it with Mark. I think the issue with this movie is it peaks there. And with that and the sandstorm sequence. As soon, oh my gosh, as soon, you are so right. As soon as they go to India, it's like, all right, I guess we gotta like. I look, I'm like, there's 30 minutes left in this. I'm like, all right, none of this stuff is cool anymore. I mean, honestly, it peaks when the Kremlin blows up for me. Nah, no, Dubai sequence is do. so much better. The, sorry, the Dubai sequence, because the sandstorm sequence is so. I'm sorry, I don't mean to immediately like dismiss you, but that sandstorm sequence is underrated. How good it is and how it uses him watching his phone and driving at the same time and stuff like that, and it's like. I think the sandstorm sequence is just as good stuff in Dubai. And also when she Paula Patton kicks her out the window and it's just like, well, like there's so many good moments in the Dubai stuff. Sorry. I like the Kremlin stuff too, but no, I think that like overall the Dubai stuff has more stuff that is cool, but I don't think you can really beat blowing up the Kremlin. That's my issue. It's like, it's such a big swing. It's like when 24 like dropped the nuke on California in the first three episodes of season. I was like, well, we got we got 21 more hours to get through, you know? Where do we go from here? Yeah, so even if they, like, catch the bad guy in Dubai, I mean, they... I know there there's a nuke that they have to stop in India, but, like, they stop it, you know, whatever. It's not like... It's like the Kremlin has so, so much consequence, and I think that shot is great because it goes on for a little longer than maybe you expect it to with him running away from it. It's just such a great like look at the scale of this and of course there's lots of that in dubai but because it's the kremlin blowing up it has a lot more you know it just has more like intellectual weight because you know it's the kremlin i will say there's a moment in this movie that i always love it's like and it's in the kremlin sequence and i remember always thinking this is the moment when i watched it for the first time that i i was already kind of sold on it because you know whenever you have a movie that goes like, opens with, like, the Mission Impossible singing and Tom Cruise saying to the camera, light the fuse, and that's what kicks off the opening credits. You know you're in pretty good hands then. Uh, but I think very specifically, the sequence with the um, device that, like, photographs them behind them and, like, projects it to the retina perfectly, and they're just slowly pushing it forward silently, I'm like, ah, yeah, this is exactly what I want out of it. And then you get the great joke of Benji like sticking his head in it for a second and it's everything I want out of it and then you get the payoff when all the guards run in and it's like going all over the place I'm like this is so cool because it's like the way it looks even with yeah. shifting of the guards it still looks like this is doesn't necessarily look like there's a screen there and also the Benji joke there is also um, one of those moments where you can tell it's like a Brad Bird movie to me like that is 100% like a this like I feel like I can see the like Dash's teacher like in the like 
the storyboard event sequence doing that, maybe. And I don't know if that makes any sense. Wait, what What's Benji's joke in that moment? It's um like uh, he's like trying to like he's doing something on the computer. It doesn't really matter what he's doing on the computer, and he like sticks his head up before it's done visualizing the back. So his entire face fills the um, hallway, and the Tom Cruise just quickly pushes him out of the way, but it's still from the viewpoint of the camera. So you just see like a hand come in and like move him, and it's great. Just a really split-second moment that I always am like, ah, the movies. <laughs> I'm really compelled, and of course Jay would have more to say about this, and I think I just think so much about what he said, where this movie is about them versus technology in a lot of ways. I think part of that, and maybe this is something that always happens in the Mission Impossible movies, and I'm just not aware of it, is it's really about Tom Cruise learning to work with Benji in the field. Because I feel like all of this stuff is not, it's not just like, the statement about technology it's because they're so isolated from everyone in russia and now he's working with bungie and benji doesn't know how to do everything both in the field and as a lab guy so he's not working his best i like that the issues they have with technology tell us things about uh, like where they are as characters and also it's about tom cruise's relationship with his new teammates well yeah i was gonna say you say just benji i think the movie's about him realizing because okay the way these mission impossible movies work again all three of them before these is like the tom cruise show and when they do have characters that show up they're not really characters with flaws and i think that might actually be why being ringa is in here because every single of his team has a flaw which is a very, like, screenwriting one-on-one Except thing. Except Rames. Well, because, we, well, no, I'm saying in this movie. Paula Patton has a flaw. She takes things too personally for a spy. Jeremy Renner is dealing with the past of, like, feeling guilt over Ethan, like, thinking he killed Ethan's wife. Or, like, let Ethan's wife die. And then Benji's just like, I'm new at this, and I feel out of my depth here. The thing is, it's not necessarily, it's... The fact that Ethan can look at these weaknesses and help them work through it, which is something that I think is pretty unique to this one. Because if I remember right, Fallout kind of has this bizarre thing where everyone's like, Ethan Hunt is like a manifest, uh, the representation of manifest destiny. And I think actually that might be in Rogue Nation. The ones after this become once again like the Tom Cruise show, even though they do have a team. But this is the one where Tom Cruise, and well, Ethan really realizes, you know, like, you still need to trust these people who are flawed, right? Because you, you can still trust flawed people more than you can trust this tech <laughs> that we have um, when we have no backup. Because if Benji's your, because Benji is tech backup. Like that was his job in the third movie. Is he's the technical backup. And so in this one, it's like, oh no, he's just he's goofing around. And also, and I said this to my parents, the ensemble nature of it definitely feels like this is where Brad Bird brought his incredible stuff. I did feel like there were a lot of moments from Incredibles, and then just uh, from what we know about Brad Bird, the auteur. Where it's like, no, Tom Cruise, you have to trust your teammates. You have to work together with them. You can't protect them like Mr. Incredible or Remy or anyone like that. I mean, but that's what I mean is like, that just might be a Mr. Impossible thing. It's interesting because in talking about Tom Cruise's star power, that's something this is like the only movie where I feel like that's really prevalent. Because even in like, you know, the biggest movie last summer, Top Gun Maverick, the point of that movie is that Tom Cruise is right. And I don't know if you, did you ever see Top Gun Maverick? No. Uh, it's it's fun. It's good fun. But, like, it's not really... There's a reason, like, they'll never make a Top Gun 3. I mean, they might, but it'd be hard Man, to... Tom Cruise is gonna get old. Because, yeah, that's the thing. is like, it's not like... It's not like, say, hypothetically, if in, even though Disney's already announced they're gonna do another Star Wars with Rey, but it's not like, say, if 20 years down the road, they're like, they're gonna go back to Rey. And he'd be like, eh, okay, but, like, it would make sense, right? There's, there's a passive... Or, like, 
say in 20 years from now, and like let's say Creed ends at five, and like 20 years from now, there's a movie with an older Michael B. Jordan passing down the reins to someone else. Like that would make sense. Top Gun doesn't do that, and this doesn't do it either, because we've mentioned this was supposed to pass it down to Jeremy Renner, and then the movie was rewritten so that way it didn't happen, because even in this movie, Tom Cruise has so much more presence than Jeremy Renner. And I, I feel like it's pretty clear to them, like, there's no way they could just give it to Jeremy Renner. It's almost like it cursed Jeremy Renner to always be this, like, supporting character guy, you know? I, I feel like it's I, more the Bourne legacy that did that, though, personally. <laughs> was that Jeremy Renner's fault, though? I haven't seen the Bourne legacy, but I, I don't know. It's hard to imagine, like, the fourth Bourne movie failed because of Jeremy Renner. That's true. I don't know. I think Jeremy Renner just was this thing where, you know, Hollywood tried to push him as a leading man, and it was very obvious quickly he's not that. Like, even, like, even talking about the Avengers, like, uh, it took him, like, five years to get, no, not five years, like, ten years to get, like, a solo project on Disney+, Plus, and when he got it, it's to make it Haley Steinfeld's show where she learns from him. So, it's like, even they, like, we can't even give him something for himself, because that would make no sense. Like, well, I mean, I don't know. That's that's a fine life to live. It just it does seem like he kind of like we're always teased with a lead Jeremy Renner, and then it just doesn't happen for one good reason or another. Uh, one of my favorite memes. Maybe came from maybe this his movie. app was like his couch. I'm trying to see if I can find it really quick, but if I can't, it's fine. Now, I once saw this um really funny. Yeah, I can't find it. It's gonna be impossible to find. An old website I was on that's now gone once had this um, guy who would make these GIFs that were hyper-specific. And he did that sequence where um, Benji's talking to Jeremy Renner on the plane. And like explaining like the third act where it's like, you're going to have to be on electromagnets and stuff and I'll catch you. And it was like, <laughs> I wish I had it in front of me. But it was like, the whole thing was Jeremy Renner being like, in the gift being like, am I really a terrible actor? Am I really that uncharismatic? Am I really that annoying? And then time pegging the gifts like no yeah, yeah you're fine don't worry about it like you're great don't you're fine and then it cuts to at the end back to him on the computer typing in jeremy renner has a rat face on like a message board <laughs> and it's like uh, be funny if you really i don't know <laughs> i don't i don't feel like he's like incapable of charisma i feel like remember when he had a wife in the marvel movies like wasn't that cool he, sh he should be one of these, like, uh, what's his name? Like, one of these CIA guys doing, like, Jack Ryan or whatever. But that's what the goal was, you know? It was the goal was to give him Bourne or Mission Impossible. And Mission Impossible wasn't that the audience rejected it. It was that the people behind her were like, this is a bad idea. And they very smartly changed it because, you know... Mission Impossible, seven months coming out today, right? So... And now Chris Hemsworth seems to be kind of filling that B-movie action niche. Well, that's because of Netflix, too. Jeremy Renner could probably get one of those Netflix, like, original action movies he wanted. Although, right now, you know, he's recovering from injuries still, so we'll see. Um, although, I do feel like... I feel like it's kind of weird that he doesn't have, like, a John Wick ripoff. Because everyone has a John Wick ripoff these days. Does does everyone have a John Wick ripoff? Or, do, or is John Wick a ripoff of a lot of those great, like, Thai movies? I don't know. I feel, I feel like... John Wick occupies that like art action niche and then we have people like then there's like Liam Neeson he's like old man action and we have Chris Hemsworth well I think I always think when I but then like you have stuff like you know Nobody the Bob Odenkirk movie or like oh is it not a comedy action but it's got John Wick action in it or Atomic Blonde and stuff like that I don't necessarily want to chase the John Wick tangent because there's a different John Wick tangent we can go on which is the other big flaw of this movie is the villain has no presence at all. Uh, which is yeah. bizarre, because it's the actor in the first John Wick. And in the first John Wick, 
He's fantastic. He has such a presence in the first John Wick movie. Well, it's funny that you mentioned this. I was just listening to another online show, and people were talking about why John Wick is so good, and it's because the bad guys spend so much time talking about John Wick, the guy in John Wick movies, so you have, like, all this time spent with the villain. But in Mission Impossible, he's supposed to be mysterious and inaccessible, and he's not super flamboyant. And yeah, I mean, I'm just kind of re-saying what you're saying. But yeah, it's super it's super weird that, like, does Mission Impossible not get flamboyant villains? I just learned today that Philip Seymour Hoffman was, was in the third say, one. The third and, like, one is, how could he not, like... Well, I mean, I said in the recording, there's been two great Mission Impossible villains. Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's, like, easily the best, because he's the only one who's psychological, because it's Philip Seymour Hoffman playing the role, of course. Um, and then Henry Cavill in the most recent one was actually a very great villain, I thought. Very fun to play with that role, his energy, and make him a bad guy. And plus also, you put Henry Cavill next to Tom Cruise, you, even you're like, because even these movies where Tom Cruise always wins, it's like, oh, that's like a, like, that's like a Bane move, right? You put Bane next to Batman, you're like, oh no, like, he might actually be in trouble. Yeah. Funny thing about Michael Nickfist, he played Daniel Craig's part in the original Girl with the Dragon Tattoo movies, so, yeah. You're just, I don't know, I had so much fun with this cast, like, finding them and other things. It is a very stacked cast, even in the small roles. I remember being, ex- I remember, uh, I think it was before, I think it might have been after this, is, um, so, surprisingly didn't come up when I was talking to my parents, is my parents love 24. 24 was, like, a rite of passage in my family, that you would get to be old enough to watch 24 with the family, basically. And I'm checking very quickly when he was on 24, but Anu Kapoor who shows up in the third act of this movie. Uh, he was on 24 in 2013 to 2016. So after this, yeah. No, I actually, no, I'm, I lied. He was on... Actually, no, no, he was... Sorry. That was... He's, he's in the 24 remake for India where he plays Jack Bauer or the Jack Bauer character. But in the American 24, he was on in 2010. So I remember then when we were getting trailers for this, my parents recognized from the trailers, oh, it's the guy from 24 because he's a president who gets assassinated. Um, in the final season of 24. Okay, yeah, that makes sense that he was the president. I don't know, it would be kind of weird He wasn't if he like was the American like the president. Guy. He was um, the Kamistan president, which is a fictional country, obviously. The what? Uh, Kamistan. Kamistan. They... What? Is that a real country? That just seems so silly, because it's, like, it's not like Latvia, where they're kind of small, and you can stick like a Latveria in there. Those countries are like huge over there so it's just funny that they would like once make got that like up. in trouble early on about countries or i also think because this was in the like the final season this is the point where like the discourse around 24th started where it was like is this uh is this an islamophobic show and in doing so they're like well we'll just make up a fictional country then because you know no one will point to us as a problem we'll make, we'll make it a fictional islamic country yeah basically (laughs) sorry like basically well and and other people might know him as the host of the game show on Slumdog Millionaire yeah having just rewatched Slumdog Millionaire he is a good actor I really do like when he pops up in movies yeah I mean he's great in Slumdog Millionaire he's fantastic in Slumdog Millionaire I was a yeah, I know you hate me mentioning that podcast, that other podcast, but I did just recently watch Slumdog Millionaire in the last few months, 
And both Anil Kapoor and um, Irfan Khan are both, you know, Indian actors who occasionally pop up in American stuff. Who, whenever they were in, I say were because Irfan Khan has sadly passed away. But whenever they pop up, it's like, ooh, I get a little excited. Even if the, even if Irfan Khan was wasted, I'd be like, ah, there he is. And one of my first letterbox lists I ever made was a uh, 2012 movies where Irfan Khan excitedly talks about Richard Parker and it's Life of Pi because the uh, the tiger in that movie's name is Richard Parker. And then he has a bizarre role in The Amazing Spider. Man one where he talks about he knew Peter Parker's dad in that movie and he's always like Richard Parker <laughs> <laughs> now I'm looking him up he's such a star I don't know if he's like an well no because his Indian movies are like considered like some of the greatest Indian uh, app performances ever I know but then he mm-hmm. pops up in American stuff occasionally always always being wasted over than Life of Pi and Slumdog Millionaire if we count that as American it's kind of British he was in the lunchbox which is one of those like foreign cinema that everyone should watch i've never seen it but like i don't know i didn't know he was such a well-regarded dude i just recognized his face oh and he also had a i actually not remember it recently i just ran through a lot oh, a lot of Wes anderson movies including the ones i haven't seen and he has this bizarrely small but incredibly moving role in the darjeeling limited have you seen the darjeeling limited yeah but it's been so long he plays the father whose son gets um passes away so he has no lines, but he just his entire performance is just so it's a lot. It's a it's a lot to it's just a very sad movie. Very good movie. But anyway, uh Irfan Khan is not in Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. You talked about like wasting people. I feel like that's kind of the issue with both uh, Michael Nickvist's character and Anil Kapoor's character. Michael Nickvist because he is kind of asked to be nobody. And Anil Kapoor, just because I, I don't know, he's just kind of goofy, but it doesn't go anywhere. He gets to be a little hammy. I think that's a little fun for him, but yeah, I would agree. It's a little, it's a bit much. There's just not a twist to it. I don't mind hamminess. It's just that it's so like, I don't know. I didn't like. What's this Sorry, guy's I'm deal? Laughing because uh, we let's talk about Anil Kapoor first, and I'll explain, explain why I'm laughing. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's been a lot of criticism, even by fans of Mission Impossible, that the India segment of this movie is. More than anything else, and you're really partaking in the stereotypes. And Inal Kapoor's character is part of that, I feel like. There's nothing, as you said, there's nothing really to him other than he has, like, an exotic house where it's a lot of Indian cliches, you know? And all he is is like, ooh, wow, you're so hot. And it's like, alright, like, calm, like this, is, this is a bit much. Uh, I do like the moment where Paula Patton, like, breaks his, like, finger or something. I don't think she breaks it, but, like, she's terrified that Jeremy Renner's gonna die. Yeah. It's a bummer they never brought back Paula Patton. I was kind of like coming in and out of the movie during the India sequence. Yeah, I think the I think the last part of it's okay when he's there. I think the stuff on the um, parking garage is fun. I always think about that whenever I'm in a, I walk. There's a giant parking garage in Chicago by our Trump Tower where it's like that design, and I always look at that and go like, ah, like Mission Impossible. You have a Trump Tower in Chicago. It's yeah of course we do of course <laughs> i don't know I, I i'm surprised i think there were two in new york and i just i don't know when you would like learn about it you're thinking like oh there's the trump tower but there were like several of them it's actually um i don't did you see nita costa's Candyman remake no so there's that movie was air quote shot in chicago probably was what, actually shot what on in earth chicago. does that mean it's a movie that constantly says it's in chicago i watched it I'm like this does not feel like chicago at all and it got me really mad because the first Candyman is so in chicago the first Candyman is really good yeah the first Candyman is fantastic i should rewatch it because i remember being a little underwhelmed but then the more and more i think especially when i saw the remake i was like oh you know the first one was really good but there's one scene in it that i'm pretty sure was shot in chicago and it's that yaya 
uh, Abdul Yaya Abdul Mateen the third. No, it's Yaya Abdul Mateen the second. The second. Oh man, he's walking. Yeah, <laughs> so close. He's walking down Dearborn Street, I think, and it's like over the bridge, and you can see Trump Tower in the background. But it's like, oh well, I know you shot that scene here because it's exactly like a normal people like normal people walk across that street all the time. It's a bridge over the river. It's like the one shot on that movie I think was shot here. I think everything else was interiors elsewhere. There's a sequence in um, Candyman where it's like all set within the underground art world of Chicago and I'm like, I don't know, I have friends who'd be into that stuff. I feel like I've been to places that are like contemporary art in Chicago and none of them are like, it's such a New York vibe or a, more of a hipster city vibe than what Chicago is. Because even contemporary modern art stuff that's going to be hipstery, like, it still fits the vibe of your city no matter what. And I don't think Candyman nails the Chicago scene at all. Yeah, it's hard for me to take in, like, New York movies because my I'm just part of a small part of New York. So obviously there's, like, yeah, Times Square I know Square you were mad in, in the Heights. You were mad in the Heights. You were mad in the Heights because... You've been in the Heights, and you're like, that's not accurate. Well, I haven't, you know, I wasn't in the Heights when Lin-Manuel was in the Heights, but I've been here for a little bit. I don't know, I don't think, just for me, I don't think, like, in the Heights feels that much like in the Heights. I don't know. The, the, I don't know. I could, I could, I'd have to rewatch the movie before I would give an educated take on that. But I was just thinking about New York movies I've seen, and I think that the best one that I've seen that, like, matches what I, like, feel about New York is the taking of Pelham 123, which I might have mentioned on this podcast before, but I just, I want to like, like, psyop that into people's brains. You should watch the original taking of Pelham 123 because it's so good and it feels like New York. But the reason I was giggling about 10 minutes ago was when you're like, uh, you said something where it was like, there's, they make no twist of an Kapoor. And I, you remind me of the dumbest moment of this movie, which is when we go through that whole chase, sand chase action scene and it reveals that, whoa! It was the main bad guy the whole time that was there. And it's just kind of like, why? 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 Why Why did we need this reveal? Yeah, I don't know. Like, doesn't he have henchmen? Yeah, and the henchman is in the third act. So, yeah. I just always, I always, that always happens. like, what was the point of this? Other than be like, oh, he, maybe to set up, like, I feel like maybe the intention was to set up, like, for the third act when they're wrestling in the um, parking lot to set up, oh, this guy might actually, like, is, like, physically capable, you know? Because otherwise he just looks like an old guy, an old Swedish guy. Um, but that's really the only thing I can think of, because otherwise it's, like, it's just so dumb. And it also does set up what I said earlier, where it's, like, these bad guys probably do have access to the tech. I don't know. It seemed, yeah, it's just hard. I haven't seen the other Mission Impossible movies. I can only compare this in my mind to, like, the Joker, who the ultimate flamboyant villain, and, of course, it falls short of that oh well, yeah the, the joker villains. has henchmen this is more like uh if we're gonna compare this to any like bond villain recently i feel like it's got to be more like the and i think it pales comparison to um, mads mickelson and casino royale yeah i guess you're right mads mickelson is is like that guy that is in that he's not doing all of the stuff the whole time he just does it when it matters <laughs> well i don't know what we're saying because like oh he's like Nordic or whatever, and that's why. No, he's that's like not even what Nicholson. I mean, though. It's like it's not Javier Bardem. It's not like Javier Bardem in Skyfall, where it is like a Joker chaos villain, or Jason Momoa in the new Fast and Furious movie. You know, it's not a chaos villain. It's a this is what I want to do. This is how I'm going to do it. Philip Seymour Hoffman is closer to like a Javier Bardem. I, I I don't really think a Joker, but more like a Javier Bardem in Skyfall type of villain. Yeah, I think the only real direct comparison you could ever make in this franchise to their villains is the Henry Cavill as Bane. 
I haven't seen Jason Momoa in Fast and Furious, but my meal watch has been the Fast and Furious movies because you gave me your Voodoo account to watch Ghost Protocol. I've got a nice Voodoo collection. <laughs> you really do. It's like the big hits of the 2000s. And let me tell you, I have not finished the first Fast and Furious movie because I it is my meal movie, but I love it. It's a good movie. You know, I think of The Departed as like a great movie to watch on DVD. Like, this is the thing you put on and you just watch it a billion times. Have you... Wait, so have you never seen them? No, I've never seen them before. Oh, man. Are you in for a treat other than Fast and Furious 4? Because I only have the first seven. Because I... In my opinion, the series should end at 7 and... Not the fate of the Furious? Well, 7 is the one that Paul Walker died during. So it's like... It gives... It's the only one that doesn't really have a cliffhanger too. Because it's like, we have to end this. You know, like, there are no open threads. There's no post credit scene. It's like, we gotta end this. So it's a perfect get-off point. And it's just... The ending, you know, makes you cry every time. Because it's... It's not that Paul Walker... And that's not like the character died. Or even that Paul Walker died. It's that you hear Vin Diesel, like, sincerely mourn his friend. And while they play, uh, like, Wiz Khalifa. And, uh... Charlie Poof, and you just start crying in the theater. Well, I could go on a whole thing about me watching Fast and Furious, but I just wanted to compare it to Mission Impossible and say that I feel... I don't know. The reason I love Fast and Furious, or am loving it, is because every scene is hilarious. And maybe other people feel differently well, this about this. this is the this. funniest one. This is the funniest Mission Impossible, so... Well, I mean, that's, that's, I don't know. That's my issue with it. Is I don't know. I, it's not as funny to me as this other popcorn movie that I'm enjoying right now. Well, I do think it's interesting you bring up Fast and Furious because 2011 is a turning point for both franchises because they do basically both reboot themselves. Because Ghost Protocol does function as a... It's not like a reboot reboot, but it's like the last movie was in the corner. He has a wife. How are we going to write it out of this and move on to like the next stage of the franchise? And also gives you like you know Tom Cruise's stuntman. And of course, the other great action movie of 2011 is Fast Five, which um, comes out in April of 2011 and completely changes what the Fast and Furious movies are even more radically than this changes what Mission Impossible is. I have so much going on lately. I just want to watch the Fast and Furious movies, but I I can't. I have to try and rewatch Ghost Protocol before coming on the pod today, and then listen to the, your parents' audio, but. That's where my heart is. Well, I watched Babe before this while I was waiting for you, so it was a good time. Do you feel like it is? it has, like, cleansed your palate? Well, I mean, I think Babe is... I, I, I was watching Babe, and I, I had this thought, and I, I texted it to a couple people, is um on Wise with Ty and Dan, one of my former Marvel podcasts, Sarah Kanoff came on to guest for our Sam Raimi episode, where she argued that Evil Dead 2 was the greatest film of all time. And... I had a response that's not normally what I have when someone says that, which is normally I go like, nah, it's a Truman show, or like, eh, maybe, but as soon as she said that, I was like, I don't agree with it, but I definitely, like, would never argue against that, and that was my opinion when I finished Bale, I was like, if someone walked to me and said it was, this was the greatest film of all time, I'd be like, I could see that, you know, <laughs> like, it's not like it was a bad, mo it's not like, I can't find anything wrong with Babe. Anyway... But anyway, I don't know, I just found this movie kind of lacking in the jokes, and I really noticed it during the India sequence, where I just didn't find this guy particularly funny. And I feel like The Incredibles and Ratatouille had some jokes that weren't, I don't know, Ratatouille's really not, not really haha funny Ratatouille, and actually some of the comedy in Ratatouille feels kind of out of place. But I feel like The Incredibles had, like, lighthearted stuff. I feel like Syndrome is kind of kooky and amusing. I just felt like this whole movie was, like... This kind of gets into my own feelings about, like, Tom Cruise's performance and 
maybe you know how how productive are these things in your analysis of the film but i just felt a lot of the comedy was like yeah there's a joke there. actually i'm totally wrong because there is one good gag and it's when he that russian guy that he met was fantastic and i couldn't find a whole lot of information about oh, so the yeah. actor who yeah. played him yeah but not sergey his name's like bagodan or something he calls tom cruise sergey oh. oh you're right you're right, you're right yeah. he they trank him and then he falls out of the van into another van and then that van takes him takes his body away and then also his expression when tom cruise hands him the repelling line or whatever and he like he does a double take but it's oh it's just it's such a great expression that he makes he really he, his face is so contorted but anyway i'm just i'm just saying apart from him i just really didn't care much for the jokes I also don't know if Fast and Furious is like meant to be as funny as I find it. I mean, Fast and Furious is definitely designed to be funnier than this. Um, I don't necessarily think that's a flaw of the film. I was going to say, I think, and this was going to say when you were talking about Brad Bird and comparing it, is the important thing to note here is that this is Brad Bird as director for hire, even though I'm sure you got to like throw in some jokes or make suggestions on set. I think his concern was probably for the most part, you know, this is my first live action project. It's a big project. And Tom Cruise, I'm, I'm working with Tom Cruise and J.J. Abrams on it. It's still like, I'm here and I'm trying to still have my voice here. And I think his voice is more seen in the action and the editing of the movie. Um, and the general feel of the movie. And the one thing I, I think I made, I don't think I mentioned this to my parents because I was like, I'm going to talk about the score with, and again, I haven't rewatched three recently, but I think this feels much more like the Michael Giacchino we know from uh, Incredibles than the third film score. I think the third film score is more subdued, where this is very bombastic, like how The Incredibles is. And I think it adds a lot of style to this movie that the third film doesn't have, and how Brad Bird knows how to utilize that score. And mm-hmm. how not to utilize it, like how the Birch Cleefus scene has like no music. And I was going to say, this is also what I was going to say, you say like there's no joke in this movie that made you laugh. I think the funniest moment in this movie always, and I know what we talked about with my parents, is when it's the end of the Birch Khalifa scene, and Jeremy Renner just goes, hey, you're out of line. <laughs> he goes, no shit, I'm out of line. I don't know. That just, it's, it's just that, that seems like they're doing a joke. That's, it's I don't payoff, know. They don't, you know what? I, did, entire, I didn't like that the because it's like the one before swear that is in the Jeremy movie. Jeremy Renner constantly that... reminding him, like, oh, you're this belongs to this. Oh, you gotta do this. You gotta do this. And then at the very end, they finally just like, of course, man, I know all this stuff. Just stop talking. It ruined it for me with the swearing. And now, now I remember that line. That's the I... one swear in the entire movie. Yeah, and you think it's gonna, like, make it funny? No line in this movie is as funny as one of the first lines in Fast and Furious. What is this guy, sandwich crazy? Whatever. I think you're, you're looking it's for about someone different. that they've never I think, met I think you're, you're describing a completely different series, which I, they're both they're both good. Like Mission Impossible inspired Fast Five and stuff. Like, but they're different movies. Fast and Furious is trashy Mission Impossible, which is fine because Mission Impossible itself is trashy James Bond. Like, um, well, I don't know if it's tr- that's that's the thing too. Is like I really feel like Mission Impossible. I kind of want things from it that it's just not. You know, it's like your dad said, it really is so much fun when they're being clever and and tricky. And I don't think the best part of a Bond movie is like the gadgets. I think the Bond movie is like his relationships with the villain and then, you know, the woman that he's with. I want to jump back to talk about a couple sequence, like a actually a bit of a sequence after the Kremlin bombing. First off, you get that cool little transition on the subtitles of the movie where, like, he's waking up from being concussed, so he's translating it, which I love very specifically because I have a pet peeve, okay? 
um, where like you'll watch something on Disney Plus, right, or any of these streaming services. I'll use Disney Plus as an example. And if you have the subtitles on for Star Wars, they're gonna, or even if you don't have the subtitles on for Star Wars, they're not gonna give you that original text that was on it in the subtitles for like the alien dialogue. They're gonna give you the Disney Plus um one, and like you know, like it will just have like the, that font, right? It's not gonna be the font that was on the film original. I know this is such a pet peeve. It's such like a minor detail, but it's like. I don't have the subtitles on. Just give me the text the way it was put in the movie originally. Because it just stands out. You know, you're watching Return of the Jedi on Disney+, Plus, and it just cuts to, like, the Disney font of, like, their subtitles. You not get what I'm talking about? Give me a I weird face. I have never experienced what you're talking about. But I do... It's funny, because I do have strong opinions about Star Wars subtitles. Well, it's, I'm just using that as an example. Or, like, in... um, You watch... Black Panther, like Wakanda itself, when you see the movie in theaters, have their own like font for the subtitles. But when you watch it on Disney Plus, it just becomes the Disney Plus subtitles. Oh well, yeah, I guess I'm, I guess I'm care about that. I don't remember what the Star Wars sequels. Anyway, my point though was. here that I'm making is that we watch the movie subtitles because I watched it with my parents, and of course the subtitles, subtitles were on, and it's, they keep it the same font as the subtitles and put that cool effect on like the normal subtitle font in this, which I just like as a touch. I was like, that's great. Like, I love that. I love that no matter how you watch this, it's going to just naturally be part of the, your experience. But I also just like that moment in general. I think about that when we write our alt text for the images we post online, and I don't know if we do it you know we just kind of have to put alt text there because we do but one of my favorite things is reading very popular instagram meme pages maybe this is on twitter too and i'm misremembering it but they will change the joke for the alt text that, that just like is fun for me I don't, I don't maybe i don't really know why alt text exists because it's always like i don't listen to it or whatever is it is it like for people who are like partially blind i'm not totally sure but it's like the joke is different for a different audience even though it's conveying the same information that's really intriguing to me there's this thing i love and and there's i'm not going to talk about it a lot because eventually we're going to cover this movie but in the new spider-verse movie they add the editor notes in the corner at points which i absolutely love because the first movie only has like one moment where it's like translated in spanish is like in the corner of the screen at one point but there's a point where it's like uh, in the opening scene, uh, Miguel O'Hara, who's Spider-Man 2099, says, This guy's got hammer space! And then in the corner of the screen it says, Hammer space, the ability to, to hold something in an in infinite, like, area like a cartoon. And it says, edit, like, it's an editor note, like, in, um, you know, like, in a comic book. And anyway, I just, that that's what I was thinking of, too. That, that moment reminded me of, like, funny alt text. Even though, obviously, having editor notes is something that predates that. Yeah, I guess we're talking about a lot of different things. I just like the attention to detail in anything text-based. I like uh, Tom Cruise jumping out of the uh, the building. But then I also want to talk about the moment where he uses the dead body of the secretary as, like, a decoy. <laughs> that I like. It's like, oh, wow. Because, yeah, I don't know. I just really like that moment. I'm glad they killed the secretary as someone who has never seen these movies. Every movie has a different secretary. With the exception of the sixth one. Do they all die? Some of them die. The one before this was Lawrence Fishburne. He doesn't die. But in the third movie, it's Lawrence Fishburne. So wait, how many of them uh, have died? Alec Baldwin has also died. Well, I mean, that was me thinking, like, post-Kremlin, how are they going to top this? And then they do with him dying. And then I was like, all right, this movie is, you know, really going places. It's, like, reeling me back in after I've kind of checked out, after hearing Jeremy Renner be like, I don't do field stuff anymore. And it's like, why? And he's like, I don't know, man. I just don't like it. 
I I was not really I was not a fan of Jeremy Renner's whole deal in this movie. I think it's ridiculous that he stopped doing field work because someone died. I can get that, but it also entirely fits with like the ethos of what these movies are about, which I know you're not on board with. There's another moment I really like. Leonid, who is um the weapons the nuclear authenticator of the codes. I completely jumped around in words, but you, listeners should know what I'm talking about. And he's, you know, brought along with them for this mission we've talked about where they're trying to, you know, just duplicate codes, which is a really fun moment, too, where Jimmy is like, we can't give him the codes, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, calm down, man. Calm down. I also love the, like, sorry, I'm going to get back to what I'm talking about with Leonid, but I love the, um, the fake arm that Simon Pegg has in the sequence, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's so goofy. And oh, it's yeah. Fun. I did like the fake arm. Leonid, at the end of the scene, you know, he authenticates the codes. And he's like, please release my family. Because they took his family as collateral. And he's like, they me- the bad guy doesn't mean to go, yeah, release their family. And then he's like, all right, but I'm still killing you. And it's like, I like that moment a lot, actually. Because I had remembered it like one of those moments where it's like, you'll see your family soon. And then get shot in the face. It's like, oh, they killed the family. No, this movie goes out of the way. And be like, don't worry. Like, those guys are being... Well, it's it's ambiguous, of course, because this guy's like you know a terrorist who's like could be evil anyway. Maybe release the family's code for killing them. We don't know. We want to be negative about it, but I feel like the movie is in the space where like now we're not going to kill the kid. Like that that's not what this movie is. The bad guy's not going to do that. Why not? You know, I just don't think it's the type of like you know this is the type of movie my parents love. My parents aren't going to like the kid died off screen. That'd be too sad. I mean, I would. I think killing him off screen is you know kind of the better that's like the way you would do it i feel like it's the right move to kill him off screen because then you understand the stakes i think if they were to kill him off screen they would be like don't worry you'll be seeing them soon you know like or a cliche line like that when he gets shot you know is that not something that he said no because i was looking i was i i wish i, I don't have the i didn't write it down because i was watching with my parents but in the moment it's like he goes release lean its family and he's like, and then he goes like, thank you for your service or something like that to him. And then he shoots him. He doesn't say you're going to see your family soon or something like that. He just immediately shoots him. He has like a line, shoots him, but it's not like implying he's going to go see his family. It's not like a, your family's dead type of Wow, line. you're like Mandela-ing me here. And then you, you actually planted the Mandela because now I find that scene hard to imagine without him saying that line. Well, cause, no, because I've seen this movie so much and I saw he said a line like that and it didn't happen. I was like, oh, okay, I guess that's not here. Wow. I guess it must be a different movie. I, it's, I don't know. Because that is a clear cliche moment. You just, you just imagine him saying it like while he's walking away. I was like, of course, that's what he said. That's, that's, that's kind of my thing about this movie. I feel like I've been pretty excited about a lot of things here, and I'm also critical of other things. But like the experience of watching the movie was being so dialed in to things like Tom Cruise climbing the building, and then the hallway scene, and then other like driving through the sandstorm and just Jeremy Renner talking about whatever it was like the worst thing ever I was so back and forth in my engagement with this film and that's kind of how I feel about the whole thing is like the highs are so high I wish that the moments of great surprise were a little more connected with things that touched me in the same way and and just like the whole thing i love when they're tricking them going into the hotel room and they have to pretend to be these guys and you're not like i loved that because i didn't understand it until it happened and then i was like oh that that's what all those names were they're tr- going to pretend to be these guys um but then when they get in the room it's like shot versus shot it's like medium his heads are looking at each other and it's like all right this is a dialogue scene and that's how that's that was just my experience watching the film was maybe it would be different if I was in a movie theater. I think this might be a movie to be like 
have some food and enjoy it. This would be a good Nighthawk cinema movie, but maybe not something to watch on Voodoo. No, yeah, this is a movie that definitely plays way better in a theater. This is one of those things where, like, actually, I would say, um, although I don't know why they would ever do it, but if they ever, like, put this out at Lincoln Square for a weekend, like, for an anniversary screening, you should definitely catch this in IMAX. Let's talk briefly about Pixar, you know? Obviously, this is the first time we've seen, like, a Pixar director... Even though Brad Bird, you know, didn't start a Pixar, but, like, go off to do not his own thing, but something with someone else to make something. Like, this is a Brad Bird film. I do think primarily, you know, it's a Mission Impossible movie, yes, but it's also a Brad Bird movie. It's probably the least Brad Bird movie Brad Bird has made, but I think there's enough stuff here that it feels like him. Well, at least aesthetically. Yes. Aesthetically, it's, you know, maybe, but it's hard for me to compare it to the other Mission Impossible movies. I can really only be like, well, there's not as flashy camera movements or whatever. I just, I picked up on the thing about Tom Cruise being a leader, but other than that, I didn't really see a lot of his style in there. What I more mean with this is like, this is someone from the studio going off to make like an action blockbuster. And we're going to see this a couple more times. We're going to see it pretty soon with John Carter. We're going to see it eventually with Brad Bird in a more failed attempt with Tomorrowland. And this is actually very unique. I think this is the only time like a Pixar director really became a director for hire. This is in a way similar to like, we're hiring the guy who did Safety Not Guaranteed to make a Jurassic World movie, you know? Or we're like, even though Brad Bird is more accomplished... And Tom Cruise is more interested in what Brad Bird can bring to it. This is still him, like, doing someone else's script and discovering, you know, in live action, you can't necessarily keep remaking the movie. I suppose it's just you're you're kind of reaching to find Brad Bird in it. I don't think so. I think I remember in 2011 being like, oh, yeah, this is the guy who made The Incredibles. Well, how does this make me feel about Pixar directors going off to do live action things? Great. I'm really excited for John Carter. Nice. But we have to give the movie something. I forgot to ask my parents to give the movie something. I can't believe I did that. I'm so sorry, Mom and Dad. But I also think it's a it's a concept that's kind of weird. <laughs> Let me think of a non-food-related gift to give them. I think I get, like, hungry by the end of these episodes, too, which is why I keep giving them, like, food things. So let me see if I can think of something that's, like, not food-related. I would like to give Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, or as fans of it call it, go to call something very special. And that is, if you remember, I mentioned this movie came out a week prior exclusively in IMAX theaters. And sadly, Navy Pier's IMAX, my IMAX theater, the real IMAX theater in Chicago closed because of the pandemic. The closest real IMAX theater to me is in Indianapolis. So I will wish upon a star, and like in Disney's upcoming film, Wish 2023, I will wish that I could see Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol in IMAX again, so the Navy Pier IMAX will reopen but alas, we'll only be able to show Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol's Burj Khalifa scene on loop. But you know what? It will qualify as an air quotes thrill ride attraction because that scene is so tense that it will be good enough to open that as an attraction as rather than an IMAX theater. That's the thing is it closed because like, an IMAX theater isn't financially viable. We need to replace it with an attraction. So the Ghost Protocol Burj Khalifa scene can do that and reopen it. I, You know what I think this movie really needs is Tom Cruise. Criterion. <laughs> Criterion. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> don't don't like don't give it something so great that's gonna like bring out my negativity i feel like i've been doing all right with this <laughs> I'm film joking. I... I i you know tom cruise really like needs a wife so i feel like that's what i want to give this film is someone like i don't know perhaps rebecca ferguson could come on in a future installment 
and like be Tom Cruise's wife. His wife is in this movie though. Yeah. Michelle Monaghan is his wife. Yes. You're really showing me you listened to this on the train because my mom went into detail about this. <laughs> really... no, I, know, I know that Michelle Monaghan is his wife, but she's. Who is that at the end? It's Michelle Mon. Like, Anil Kapoor could have played. Maybe his she watched the third movie. Maybe she watched the third movie, which is entirely built around Ethan Hunt having a wife. <laughs> Do they like. Does it end well? Because this movie seems to be a lot about him not having a wife. It ends very well, it has a happy mm-hmm. ending. I tell you what movie is about someone who doesn't have a wife, Temple of Doom. Very true. So I'm going to give this movie a screening of Temple of Doom, which is another movie that I recently watched and like really enjoyed as a popcorn movie. <sighs> bad movie. Bad movie. It's that's fine. That can be a bad movie. I just you know, speaking of like action sequences, I'm really pro the minecart chase at the end. Uh, my only take is I just it's, you heard of my parents. I just rewatched Indiana Jones and the King of the Crystal Skull. And I was shocked to discover that my opinion on the Indiana Jones films have not changed since 2008. It's just that I'm kinder to the bad ones. But the ranking still goes Raiders, Last Crusade, Crystal Skull, Temple of Doom. I think you're in. Everyone feels that way. I don't, like, disagree. I just... People were people were really, like, negative about Temple of Doom, and then I watched it, and then I was like... And it's the worst one, by far. Easily. It's a miserable watch. I don't think it's a miserable watch. I think there's a... Nah, I want to turn it off. By the time we get to the minecart, I want to... It's kind of like this movie, where like by the time we get to the stuff in India, I'm like, alright, wrap it up. Okay. So by the time we get to the minecart, I'm like, yeah, it's cool, but I'm already like, alright, wrap it up. And speaking of wrapping it up... Speaking of wrapping it up, what are we doing <laughs> next time? Sorry, this became a Temple of Doom podcast. We're talking about the man, the myth, the legend of Mars... But don't worry, that's not in the title. We're taking another detour to John Carter. Oh. A film I've never, neither of us have ever seen. I'm reading the short story to prepare for it. Uh, I will not be. I will probably watch Andrew Stanton's TED Talk, but only the part about John Carter. <laughs> After I watch John Carter. And then the confused applause. Because <laughs> everyone's like, all right, talk about the movies we like. <laughs> all right. But yeah. Thanks again, Mom and Dad. Yeah. It's great to have you. They were really great. All right. Looking for the Ocean, it's produced by me, Mark Young, and Danny Vincent. It's kind of hard to make a bit out of these credits. The show is edited by Mark by Mark Young. Our original artwork was designed by Sarah Knopf. Your mission, if you choose to accept it, is to follow us on social media at Facebook at Looking for the Ocean, Instagram at Looking for the Ocean Pod, Twitter at Pixar Journey, and on our website, Looking for the Ocean, Great. We got the bit in. You can follow me on MarkYoungPerformer.com. It has my socials. You can follow me, Danny, at Blankments on Letterboxd, where very possibly, I don't know yet, if I time this episode, I might have already seen Dead Reckoning. I also might have not, so if not, it will be up. My take on the new mission possibly up there soon enough. You can also listen to my other podcast, it's not but we're talking about movies that have the most Oscar nominations, but no wins. This podcast will self-destruct in five, four, three, two, one. <laughs>